Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Also, allow me to apologize to other families formed through transracial adoption because I am deeply sorry that we suggested that interracial families are in any way funny or deserving of ridicule. Some adoption agencies are helping families have a hard conversation about anti-Asian violence. Many Americans were adopted from China, Korea, and elsewhere in Asia. Many were welcomed into white families. And earlier this year, Bethany Newman of Chicago told us how news of the violence affected her. I feel heartbroken and scared, and I don't know how to express it because I don't know that most people around me, if they necessarily think of me as Asian which is part of the reason that some agencies want to help. Here's Ashley Westerman. Kristen Knapp says the violence against Asian Americans has been hard to stomach as a human and a parent. And it's something that I take uh, to heart, even more so, I think, because I have an Asian child. She and her husband, Michael, who are white, adopted their son, William, from South Korea just last year. Knapp says after a gunman killed six females of Asian descent outside of Atlanta in March, she became very worried about how to prepare to talk to her son, who's now only three, about anti-Asian violence. What do you say? How do you talk about this with a child? And... I I can only imagine as he grows older, especially, and he becomes more self-aware, it's going to be something that we will have ongoing conversations about. So she started Googling. In the beginning, Nep, who lives in Ohio, says she didn't find a lot of resources or answers. But eventually, she started seeing trainings and webinars pop up, offering advice on how to talk to your child about anti-Asian racism. I signed up for them immediately. One webinar she attended was hosted in tandem by two of the largest adoption and foster care agencies in the U.S., Holt International and Bethany Christian Services. We really were hearing from families that Mm -hmm. they simply did not feel fully equipped to have these conversations about race with their children. Sherry Williams works for Bethany Christian Services. They're just two of the many groups that answered the desperate questions from adoptees and parents. How do I talk to my child about their race? How do I talk to my child about these events that are happening in our nation? Is it my role as the parent to bring that up or do I play off the child's cues? And while these groups work to prepare families for conversations about race as part of the adoption process, Williams says with the police killing of George Floyd and the anti-Asian racism, this time was different. It seemed more urgent. Tara Vanderwood is an adoptee from South Korea who works as an adoption educator and consultant. She helped moderate the Holt Bethany webinar and says she was surprised that so many white parents seem unable to see their children as another race, making talking about race really difficult. Because I think either they think it's all better because these kids were adopted and look, it could have been so much worse, or they take it personally, like I did not do enough. Um, This is my fault. Not talking about race can leave adoptees feeling stuck between their actual racial identity and their white parents. Vanderwood says she tells parents it's important to initiate talking about race regularly at a young age. 
so that kids feel the permission to also speak up and so that kids say, hey, you know, my parents got my back. They see what I see. She says while adoption groups may have responded to the harrowing events over the last year, it shouldn't take a crisis for more resources to go into helping families have these conversations. Conversations, Vanderwood says, are necessary and should be ongoing. For NPR News, I'm Ashley Westerman. Let's see, he said, selecting a sample and running his thumb across the board. That's it. As white as George Washington's Sunday go-to-meeting wig. And as sound as the almighty dollar. That's paint, he said proudly. That's paint that'll cover just about anything. He looked as though I had expressed a doubt, and I hurried to say, Wait, it's certainly white, all right. White! It's the purest white that can be found. Nobody makes a paint any whiter. This batch right here is heading for a national monument. I see, I said, quite impressed. Can an ex special experimental paint that recently made it into the Guinness Book of World Records one day help keep the world from heating up? John Yang went to West Lafayette, Indiana to find out. The world-famous buildings of the Greek Isles some less famous beetles, and the glaciers that, for now at least, dot the globe. Their common color, white, helps keep them all from heating up. Of all the colors, white absorbs the least amount of heat. All right, so to solve these equations... It's the color that Purdue University mechanical engineering professor Shulin Ruan thought could help with climate change. The refractive index is going down. Ruan and several of his students spent years on a quest to invent a new kind of white paint that could cool the planet. You only need to paint less than 1% of the Earth's surface. No matter is the roofs, roads, cars, we should be able to totally reverse global warming and bring the temperature back to where we want them to be. Commercial white paint is widely used in hotter climates because it reflects 80 to 90 percent of sunlight, which keeps surfaces from getting too hot. But Rowan wanted to take it a step further and figure out something that would actually cool surfaces. So what our paint does, it reflects as high as 98.1 percent of sunlight, which means it only absorbs 1.9 percent of sunlight almost no heat from the sun. Commercial white paints, they still absorb 10 to 20 percent. So in that sense, uh, we cut the heat gain from the sun uh, by five to ten times. That's a big deal. And that's enough to make the difference between something that cools itself mm -hmm. and something that heats up. Yeah, exactly. One of Rwanda's students, PhD candidate Joe Peoples, showed us what makes this paint different. The particles have started to separate. You see how it's mixing? It contains high concentrations of the chemical compound barium sulfite, which is used in cosmetics and to brighten photographic paper. Many people think this is very dangerous. It's actually not. It's actually um, safe to ingest. So when you do uh, medical x-rays of your bowels, right. you actually take barium sulfate. It makes your bowels opaque so that you can see them in the x-ray. And how much paint are you going to make now? This will make about... 50 to 100 milliliters of paint. It takes around 18 hours, and that will cover around a 3 by 3 inch square. To see one of those small, painstakingly painted copper squares in action, we went up to the rooftop. This tile here is actually the brightest commercial white paint we can get. It has the most reflectivity of around 88%. And then this is our barium sulfate paint, which has a reflectivity of around 98.1%. And just with the naked eye, this looks 
a brighter white Correct. than this. And actually, this is cool to the touch. Already, yes. This one is absorbing so much more solar energy, therefore it's heating up. Well, this one is absorbing a little amount of solar energy, but it's rejecting more to deep space, so therefore we're getting it below ambient temperatures. So it's actually cooling. It's actually cooling. Just sitting here by itself with no electricity, it's cooling down below this outdoor temperature we feel now. Wow, they're about 10 degrees different right now. To give us an idea of the difference the paint makes, Rowan and Peoples fired up an infrared thermometer. What you can see here is this square is very orange, right. which means it's very warm compared to our paint, which is a nice dark color, which means it's much, much cooler. On this sunny 73-degree Fahrenheit day, the tile with their white paint was nearly 15 degrees cooler than the one with commercial paint and more than 2 degrees cooler than the surrounding air. We were on top of the world's largest air conditioning research lab, something Rowan and Peoples hope the world will need less of with their paint. Would this really eliminate the need for air conditioning? I mean, it could eliminate air conditioning for certain uh, sort of uh, locations and uh, I would say certain time of the year. If you use this in Phoenix, Arizona or Reno, Nevada, it could save up to 75% of the cooling. Uh, during the summer months. Large-scale production would mean increased mining for barite, but Rowan says their paint is more environmentally friendly than commercial white paint. It took the researchers more than seven years to test over 100 different materials before landing on this winning formula. Tell me what it was like that moment or that day you realized you had succeeded, that this was actually cooling below ambient temperature. As you can imagine, you know, my PhD research was literally watching paint dry. <laughs> so when we actually finally got something that was successful in what we theorized for so many years, it was extremely validating. But I started to realize when we got uh, so much interest from people all over the globe, we came to realize that many people need cooling in an affordable way. And many places, aside from cooling, we need to address climate change. You know, our work can have a far-reaching impact than we thought. They've applied for a patent for the formula and partnered with a major paint company in hopes of bringing it to the wider public. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm John Yang in West Lafayette, Indiana. With um, the Flint and how the, the blackmail said that um, we could have lost an entire... Um, generation to um, the lead poisoning and um, I, I would say uh, yeah I, I'm certain uh, we have lost an entire generation to um, that that um, chemical um, warfare um, that is the Flint Michigan um, disaster terrorist attack incidentally uh, the terrorism with the water now that did also happen in Flint Michigan and Newark New Jersey those are just places that we know about I'm sure a number of other regions as well that's part of the uh, infrastructure package that is having all that difficult time. The report we heard was about Benton Harbor, which is also in Michigan, not Flint, Michigan, totally different area, which also happens to have a significant population of black people who are suffering with this problem and may have a so-called lost generation uh, of children. Uh, as a result of chemical biological warfare, but yeah, two different regions. It's a familiar story. A majority black town in Michigan has high levels of lead in the water. Officials have known about it for years. People wait in long lines for water to bathe, cook, and brush their teeth with. 
But we're not talking about Flint here. This time, it's Benton Harbor in the southwestern corner of Michigan. Last week, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer set an 18-month goal for replacing the lead pipes throughout the city. Marcus Muhammad is the mayor of Benton Harbor, and he joins us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. When did you first hear about the lead problem? So in 2018, uh, we were um, confronted by Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy to inspect and look at our water filtration plant. And they uh, tested 30 homes, and they found that eight homes out of the 30 that were tested exceeded the 15 parts per billion, uh, which is above the federal guidelines for the limit. And then we procured some funding through EGLE in the state of Michigan to begin the process of uh, changing lead service lines. Um, Sorry, j- j- just to jump in for a moment, if 2018 was when the state first started to become aware that there was a problem with lead in Benton Harbor, why has it taken until just now for the governor to say, all right, we're going to replace all these pipes, don't drink what comes out of the tap? Do you think families with kids are comfortable with the idea that lead has to be in the water for three years before the state takes aggressive action to do something about it? Well, I mean, no amount of it is acceptable. The wheels of government, unfortunately, uh, sometimes can turn slow. But, you know, my issue and focus at this time, sir, is eliminate the problem because the lead service lines were in the ground. You know, I'm 46, much longer than that. Do you think the city could have done more to let people know that they should beware of this, that they should not be drinking the tap water? I mean, the city put out a press release in August, but as of this weekend, some residents of Benton Harbor didn't seem aware of the danger the water posed. Well, you know, I I spoke with the mayor of Midland. Uh, She talked about, you know, when she had to go door to door to tell residents, you know, you have to evacuate your house right now, you know, due to the, the two dams breaking and the flooding. You know, so if I had to go back and, you know, rewind uh, in 2018, you know, when we sent out, you know, the, the letters to the homes, and we you know, put it in the newspaper and it was, you know, really news all over. But in terms of going door to door, you know, as the mayor and, and, and letting residents know, you know, maybe that kind of campaign would have been more uh, informative. Uh, and again, that's high. There are so many commonalities with what happened in Flint. Have you been talking to officials in that city about their lessons learned? Yes, yeah, so I've met with Mayor Neely. I spoke with former Mayor Weaver this morning. You know, but I, I, I take issue with that because what happened in Flint is, you know, lead service lines, yes, that's a commonality. But we never switched our water source. Our water source is Lake Michigan, as always. This is an issue of infrastructure and old pipes. That's the way homes were built. And the issue comes down to dollars and cents. You know, $30 million for a city like Big Harbor is Mount Everest. This is a city of about 10,000 people. Of 10,000 people with a per capita income of 21,000. Mm-hmm. With a 70% rental base. So that's why we need the state of Michigan to lean in. We need the governor's support. We need Biden administration. But when we have political chicken going on and politics 
then mayors like me have to sit and wait and people suffer at the bottom because games are going on. That's Marcus Muhammad, mayor of Benton Harbor, Michigan. Thank you very much. Thank you. The popularity of dollar stores has exploded during the pandemic. Research suggests 88% of Americans shop at dollar stores, at least sometimes. And about four in 10 new store openings in the country this year are for dollar stores. But that proliferation has some communities concerned. Dollar stores have fewer choices for fresh food, and for some neighborhoods, the stores are their only place to shop. Joining us now to talk about it is Brian Vines, a reporter with Consumer Reports. Hi, Brian. Hi, thanks for having me. So in your story, you have some pretty astounding statistics about dollar stores' recent growth. More dollar stores than Starbucks and McDonald's. Why are we seeing this almost exponential growth in the number of these stores right now? In 1955, a father and son team decided that they'd go into business and sell good stuff to rich people. But they ended up selling, in their own words, the cheap stuff to poor folks. And the rest is history. Those were the founders of Dollar General. And they have a business model that has really met this moment in the sector that's called value retail, where everyone's always looking for a deal. And as you explained earlier, some people only have that option to engage with these stores in the dollar vein, and others are just discovering them. So there are people from all over the map in terms of socioeconomic levels that are engaging with dollar stores. America loves a bargain. Yeah, and America has always loved a bargain. But as we heard, these numbers have really exploded, particularly during the pandemic. Is there a correlation there? Well, one phenomenon that we have noticed is the use of dollar stores by people who are on the higher end of the socioeconomic scale. If you've got a greater income uh, and you discover dollar stores, for instance, during the pandemic, when you wanted to avoid major grocery stores where you may have shopped in the past and you saw those long lines and you didn't want to get in a hazmat suit and wait and go around a 20,000 square foot grocery store and you may have driven by or noticed a little 12,000 square foot space and you go inside and there's eggs and milk and some basics and maybe little things that you picked up and all of a sudden there's a conversion that happens. So a store you may not have considered before may become a place where you go in and fill up on some items. In fact, all of the major retailers in this value retail segment, that's Dollar General, Dollar Tree, Family Dollar, say that they're the fill-in store for in-between major trips to get groceries. But that fill-in is a fill-up for people who don't have greater options. Brian, you write about your grandmother searching for hidden gems at dollar stores. But I wonder how many of those you can still find today. I mean, what can you really get for a dollar in 2021? The dollar stores of my childhood that I visited with my grandmother are far cry from those three majors that I just spoke about, where you could find oddball things that seemingly fell off a truck. But in today's dollar stores, if you were to walk in, particularly those three big ones, you'll see many of the same national retail brands that you'll find at a other grocery store or a big box store. But what may not be familiar to you is the sizes that they come in. Uh, they have those tiny same- little tubes of toothpaste. 
tiny little tubes of toothpaste, smaller than average sizes of breakfast cereal. It's it's like, honey, I shrank the products. But it's all the brands you know at sizes that may be a little strange for you. Now, these dollar stores, as we said, are popping up everywhere. How is that changing the way that Americans shop? I'd like to think that dollar stores are really like a microcosm of America. If you can tell me how you relate to a dollar store, I can draw some inferences about where you live, how much money you make, what you may do by your relationship to dollar stores. Some people see them as a way to run in and snag a quick box of Raisinets or Jujubes before a movie without paying five bucks at the theater. Other folks really depend on them to feed their families and sustain themselves. So the way that we approach dollar stores really is sort of a story of how Americans are getting by during these times, especially as we hopefully make our way out of this pandemic and a really uh, new world that's emerging in terms of our economic stability and mobility here. But some communities are concerned about the proliferation of these stores. Why? Many communities are concerned, particularly those who are low income and have a dearth of other retail options. For instance, in New Orleans East, City Council member Cindy Nguyen made a proposal that was ultimately passed by the legislature in New Orleans to limit dollar stores from opening within two miles of each other because her community, as her constituents saw it, was being completely saturated because there were so many dollar stores that were essentially, in their view, choking out competition. We've seen the same thing happen in places in Alabama and other, uh, Oklahoma was also one of the pioneering places where municipalities drafted legislation to limit the expansion of these dollar stores. Because when people rely on dollar stores, they don't want them to just take their ball and go home, but they would enjoy a more level playing field that was inclusive of things that the communities demand, like more fresh fruits and vegetable options. Yeah, facing some of this pushback, Dollar Tree and Family Dollar spokesperson says the stores actually help fight food insecurity by, quote, helping alleviate the effects of food deserts. What do you make of that assertion? In Baldwin, Florida, when the local mom and pop grocer closed, the folks in the town were left with two options. There was a truck stop where they could go for prepared food, and there was a dollar store. Seeing that this just wasn't sustainable, the mayor of the town actually would charter buses, something he said was akin to herding cats, to get his seniors on those buses to go 20 miles down the interstate to shop at a full-service grocery store. They created a municipal grocery store, and they break even with selling fresh fruits, vegetables, and other things that people need from a supermarket. It changed the life of the town. In fact, the manager of the Dollar General on the day the supermarket opened said, thank God we were under so much pressure here from people shopping. And this gives us a release valve that people had an option now to go away. So it makes a difference. That's Brian Vines, reporter for Consumer Reports. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. We'll eat everything at an incredible feast, free 99 ball you can eat.
One thing is for sure about this COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of people got sick and a lot of people went hungry. It is abundantly clear that COVID's economic and social repercussions have worsened food and nutrition insecurity in our communities. That's Barbara Ferrer from the L.A. County Department of Public Health at a Food Day Summit today. Remember the miles-long lines of cars for food giveaways last year? According to a report from USC, one in three L.A. County households experienced food insecurity in 2020, meaning that they struggled to provide the family with three meals a day. And the problem persists. It's still true for one in 10 households in L.A. County at this point. Well, these days, Department of Public Health officials are not just thinking about providing food. They're also asking, is it healthy food? Here's Deepa Shah Patel, who heads up nutrition programs there. Largely, the conversation around hunger often leads to a conversation about getting food to people inevitably, right? Getting more food to people in need. But what I think is often missing in that conversation is the quality of food. She says a significant portion of L.A. residents experience some kind of diet-related chronic disease, such as obesity or type 2 diabetes, especially in low-income communities and communities of color. When we're talking about getting food to people and then these communities all are already facing chronic diseases, we want to make sure that we're not exacerbating any diseases or conditions. In other words, unhealthy food could make problems that already plague poor families worse. But just as we saw massive innovation when it came to getting food to people in need, there's also innovation happening to make sure that food is packed with nutrients. KCRW's Catherine Barnes reports on a few ideas that are picking up steam. Let's start with food banks. They were indispensable organizations at the height of COVID. In June and July of 2020, the L.A. County Food Bank reached nearly one and a half million people. It continues to feed about 900,000 every month, double that of pre-pandemic levels. And their focus isn't just on providing food. It's making sure fruits and vegetables make up the bulk of their donations. Here's President Michael Flood. We were one of the first food banks back about 15 or 16 years ago to start rating the nutrient content of the food coming in and saying no to some donors uh, and just saying thank you, but no thank you. He says fresh produce is now the number one food category flowing through L.A.'s food bank. But providing healthier food is only one way to up nutrition levels. There's also incentivizing people to make healthier choices when they're out shopping on their own. You can see how that works here at the Route 1 Farmer's Market near the Vandenberg Air Force Base in northern Santa Barbara County. As shoppers line up at the manager's booth to swipe their credit cards in exchange for market tokens, folks using EBT cards, also known as SNAP benefits or food stamps, get a special deal. So we can run your card for however much you'd like to spend in the market, but we can actually double the first $15. Okay. So how much would you like to charge your card for today? 15 15 And we'll give you another 15 so you'll have 30 to spend in the market. Great. Yeah. The USDA provides grants to grocery stores and nonprofits, like this market, that agree to double EBT purchases spent on fruits and veggies. About 25 people a week take advantage of this market match program with more learning about it each Sunday. <laughs> Kel Ferguson stops by to grab her tokens. She's been using the program for about two years. EBT changed how I interact with food. 
um, how important it is to me. I didn't really know how to cook vegetables at all until finding out about the EBT program, and I was just trying to stretch my dollar. And uh, there was a sign up that literally said, stretch your dollar, stretch your EBT, go to the farmer's market. Shopping at the market became cheaper than shopping at the grocery store, she says. And she noticed when vendors saw she was paying with EBT tokens, they often threw in a little extra. There's the nutrition aspect where I, I think I'm getting better nutrients, um, but there's also all this intention that I have. When I, when I wake up in the morning and I make something for myself or I eat something that I have prepared, I feel better about my choices already. Now, not all farmers markets offer market match. In L.A., for example, only about half do. It's even less common for grocery stores to double SNAP benefits for produce. According to L.A. County, the only brick-and-mortar retailer participating in L.A. is Northgate Market. They offer it at six of their stores in SoCal right now, including one in Inglewood and one in South L.A. But they plan to expand to all their 42 locations early next year. Another innovative approach to helping people choose healthy food is taking place at doctor's offices. You know how you tend to follow your doctor's advice when it comes to what medicine to take, but maybe slack off a bit when it comes to diet and exercise? What if they could write you a prescription for fruits and veggies, subsidized through your health insurance, just like drugs? That's what David Kerr is trying out in Santa Barbara. Hi, my name is uh, David Kerr. I'm the Director of Research and Innovation here at Sanson Diabetes Research Institute. He says most forms of diabetes can be treated or prevented altogether by making healthier eating choices. And he wants to make that choice easier to make. Now, I'm a great believer that I don't think people wake up in the morning and say, I am going to eat really bad food today. I'm determined to eat terrible food because I want to be ill. There's something much more to this, and this starts to get into the politics of food, access to better food, and the cost of better food. So with that in mind, we piloted a small program where we asked the simple question, what if we provide better food to an at-risk population? Do you think they'll benefit? And they did. The pilot began in Santa Barbara a couple years ago, with 30 people who had or were at risk of diabetes. Their doctor wrote a prescription for fresh produce. The diabetes clinic measured their weight, waist circumference, blood pressure, and levels of sleep and pain. Patients then filled the prescription, not at a pharmacy, but by picking up a free weekly box of local fruits and vegetables. After 10 weeks, the clinic took those same measurements. And what we've found, that we've published on this, is that their blood pressure comes tumbling down. Their waist circumference goes down. We also find that for those who had diabetes in this um, population, their blood glucose control improved really quite markedly. And if I had a drug that did all those three things, it'd be a blockbuster. The program has now expanded to about 400 people, including Christy and her husband, Neftali, who didn't want to share their last name due to health privacy. Christy says they ate a lot of fruits and vegetables when they lived in Mexico. But when they moved to California about 20 years ago, everything changed. They got busy, produce was more expensive, and they went with what was cheaper and more available where they could shop. Care says that's all too common for immigrants. 
people who move to the United States, the first and worst thing that happens is they adopt a traditional American diet, which is ultra-processed, energy-dense, really bad for your food. We're trying to change that. Christy lists off what they get in their produce box. Elote, espinaca, calabacitas, aguacate, cilantro. Corn, spinach, zucchini, avocado, cilantro, lettuce, carrots. Talk about big pharma. She says the program has reawakened in her a love of cooking vegetarian. Plus, she's sleeping better and has lost weight. Produce prescriptions and nutrition incentives are only two on a long list of possible solutions. There are veggie rescue organizations, gleaning programs, cooking classes at public libraries aimed at those on a budget. And let's not forget affordable housing, since a major barrier to cooking healthy meals is simply not having an adequate kitchen space. It's a both-and approach. And from doctors to farmers to eaters like you and me, there's plenty of room at the table. For KCRW, I'm Katherine Barnes. A Decatur woman is fighting to stay in her home of 27 years. Her story speaks to larger issues in Atlanta has become a center of a campaign from local housing advocates. Stephanie Stokes has more. Good afternoon. I am Miss Juliet Brown. And Juliet Brown Ms. wore a gray and black skirt suit as she stood in front of her South DeKalb County home. Her neighbors and a dozen people with the Housing Justice League gathered around her, carrying signs saying, keep Miss Juliet in her home. And the reason why I am standing here is because I am being evicted. She's rented this home for 27 years. It's brick, single story, her porch filled with plants. Then this spring, her landlord sent her an eviction notice, not because she didn't pay rent. Brown says the rent was paid. don't have words to say because to me it's embarrassed. I do not live a life like this. The eviction notice only said that Brown was staying in the home beyond the term of her lease. Around this time, she connected with the Housing Justice League. The group started a petition to support her. It has about 3,000 signatures. The group says the landlord who bought the house a few years ago is trying to resell it. The landlord didn't respond to WAB's request, and neither did his attorney. Brown is 63 and still hoping to stay. Because I don't have nowhere to live. Her court hearing has been delayed until November. Stephanie Stokes, WABE News. Billie Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we're still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we're still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we're still singing for St. Louis. There's a growing call for reparations that would pay the descendants of enslaved Africans for the toll of slavery and segregation. For generations, U.S. policies have prevented black families from building wealth. Now mayors across the country, including St. Louis Mayor Tishara Jones, are committing to reparations. But as St. Louis Public Radio's Chad Davis reports, some wonder if local efforts will hurt a national push. When Vivian Gibson looks back at the first 10 years of her life, she's instantly transported to her home in Mill Creek Valley. In 1959, St. Louis officials demolished the predominantly African-American neighborhood as part of an urban renewal campaign. The effort displaced about 20,000 black residents, including her family. 
Gibson says that forced move hurt many black residents because they didn't own their homes and weren't compensated. Some who own property weren't able to establish generational wealth and pass it on. The whole idea is to be able to have something that you can give to your children and that your children could build on and give to their children. That is just a very, very difficult thing to do when you can never get started. Gibson says some kind of reparations are necessary, not just to address slavery, but the continued policies that have perpetuated racism and segregation. The same policies and practices that displace African Americans from their homes across the country and widen the wealth disparities between black and white Americans. Mayors across the country are trying to address that gap. Mayor Deshara Jones is one of 12 mayors who believe that cities could take a leading role by implementing local reparations programs. The monetary piece is just one piece. Um, when we talk about, when I talk about reparations, I talk about reparations and because we also have to repair the racist policies that have prevented uh, African Americans in this country, again, from participating in the generational wealth that many of our white neighbors have been able to participate in. Mayor Jones says her administration is still examining how a local reparations program could work, but she says it's important to address systemic inequity and housing discrimination. For example, Jones points to how North St. Louis homes are valued far less than similar properties in South St. Louis. Most of the wealth that we hold as far as African-Americans is in the value of our homes. And we still know that there are identical pieces of property or identical houses that are in the 27th ward that look the same as the 13th ward. Yet those homes are at least 20 percent or more devalued than they are on the south side. But some proponents of a national reparations program say they aren't thrilled with local initiatives. William Darity is a public policy professor at Duke University. He's a proponent for reparations in the form of checks. He says the nation needs to eliminate the $12 trillion wealth gap between black and white Americans through direct payments. And while policy initiatives will help, he doesn't consider local initiatives reparations because cities don't have the money to eliminate the racial wealth gap. We estimate that this would be somewhere in the vicinity of two hundred eighty to $320,000 per eligible black American descendant of, of persons enslaved in the United States. So, I mean, as soon as you make that payment, uh, you've essentially erased the racial wealth gap. Data from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis shows that in 2019, the median wealth for white families was about $184,000. Black families had only $23,000. Darity says local programs could also lead to calls for a weaker national reparations program. He believes the best course of action is through Congress, though he's aware overwhelming congressional support right now is unlikely. But that simply means that part of the struggle is to make sure that we have a different Congress and that we have to work hard towards uh, ensuring that we get a different group of elected officials who will be predisposed towards a reparations plan. But Darity says the federal government paid the families of 9-11 victims and Japanese Americans who were relocated to internment camps during World War II. Vivian Gibson, whose family was pushed out of Mill Creek Valley, is aware of these precedents, too. She says after centuries of discrimination against black Americans, she's glad these discussions are happening now. We're at an interesting time in history. People are more open to what has happened in our society and how to repair it or to start anew, uh, moving forward. So reparations, 
should be on the table. Mira Jones intends to use coronavirus pandemic relief funds to fund strategies to eliminate racial inequities. I'm Chad Davis, St. Louis Public Radio. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. It's video you'll only see on News 5, and it shows an incident that has a number of Alliance parents angry. It was captured moments after an Alliance and Louisville football game came to an end. It shows a group of people running on the field in banana suits. Alliance parents tell us the costumes were racially motivated, and their players were also called racial slurs during that game. News 5's Delon Dillard is in Alliance tonight speaking with parents about this stunning incident. Alliance parents tell me they are furious because racial-related incidents whenever they play Louisville are not new. They want both districts and the Ohio High School Athletic Association to get to the bottom of this. This video shared only with News 5 shows four individuals dressed in banana costumes swarming the field at the end of Friday's Alliance versus Louisville football game. And Alliance parents say the costumes were not just a coincidence. I heard they were called monkeys. I heard they were called the N-word. I heard they were asked what it's like to be black. Um, those are the things that I was told. Um, Yes, other players. Montez and Curtis Nicholson were both at the game Friday to watch their sons play. They spotted the banana costumes, telling me those were the only individuals dressed up. I just started hearing more and more people in the, in the stands talking about how they were warned ahead of time that um, they might be called the N-word and different types of uh, racially motivated you know, phrases. The parents tell me there have been long-standing racial tensions when they play Louisville, a change.org petition with over 300 signatures co-signing those sentiments. The petition calls for the discontinuation of Louisville versus Alliance Athletics due to racial incidents involving the Louisville City School District year after year. Given the, the history of Alliance and Louisville uh, playing against each other, and the racial tension on the field, I personally would like to see the two schools not even have to play each other anymore. Alliance City Schools shared this statement with us saying in part, quote, We are aware of unrest in the community regarding Friday night's game against Louisville. All allegations are being taken seriously and thoroughly looked into. We teach our students to treat everyone with dignity and respect and expect others to do the same for them. Parents, though, say both districts should be doing more. This uh, is something that... Uh, should be addressed from the top down and they should be letting them know, hey, you know, we're not going to do this anymore. Uh, it should have never happened and something needs to be done about it. So I can tell you that I have reached out directly to Louisville City Schools. We have waited for a response from them here for the past 24 hours. And at this point, we still have not heard back. Reporting in Alliance, Delon Dillard, News 5. Hate to hear that, Delon, but thank you for shedding some light on the situation. She's my friends, but I'm in France. <laughs> I'm just saying. 
France is commemorating the 60th anniversary of a dark night in Paris. In 1961, a peaceful protest for Algerian independence quickly turned into a deadly massacre as police cracked down on protesters, killing dozens. It was during the height of Algeria's war against France, and immediately afterwards, the French government covered it up. Newspapers were censored, archives sealed. During an event on Saturday, French President Emmanuel Macron laid a wreath for the victims and said the massacre was inexcusable, but he did not formally apologize for the state's role. Our next guest argues that with fascism growing in France today, ceremonies like this one are not enough. Melissa Shamam is a French-Algerian journalist and author. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. Your parents lived in France during this time. They supported the Algerian liberation struggle. Um, what did they tell you about these events that they lived through? That's the thing. I think for a very long time, they hardly mentioned the war at all. There was only um, a book about the Algerian war that was hidden in my living room. And um, my father had been quite involved, but he, he moved to Paris when he was a teenager. And I was born many, many years later because he had children only later in life um, because of all this trauma and poverty and all that. So he tried to protect me and my sister from a lot of the past history. And I kind of learned all the French history first at school about being, you know, the country of uh, the Enlightenment and resistance and human rights and the fights against the Nazis. And it's only as a teenager when I started my own reading beyond this that I, I became more aware of what happened between the French Empire, former colonies and our very own homeland. And so in your parents' generation, there was this conspiracy of silence. How much has changed in the present day? Are journalists and historians able to research and ask questions about the massacre? I mean, has there been an authoritative history? Has there been an authoritative accounting? When you try to research these things, is the information actually there? Yeah, the information is very hidden. There's a bit of research uh, that's been published um, from French historians, but it's mostly about French heroes who kind of um, mentioned it or uh, decried what was happening. It's it's not really about the, the Algerian resistance or the the number of people who were killed. So there's still disagreement in France between the authorities and historians on the number of people who died. And it's very rarely mentioned. And I think this year is one of the first time it's finally addressed that deeply. You would like to see France wrestle with its colonialist past and confront its racist sins. But the political trend lines appear to be moving in the opposite direction. Far-right groups have been gaining power and popularity. Candidates have proposed tighter borders and even forbidding parents from naming their child Mohammed. How do you reconcile the recognition of the massacre with the reality of present-day French politics? You summarize one of my um, deepest dilemma. I was um, born in Paris in France, the first one in my family, and I grew up there with all the good sides of France. I had a wonderful free education and I went to the same university as our president, uh, Sciences Po. But this is incompatible. The human rights level that France is associated with is incompatible with what is happening nowadays. And so that's why I also live in England, because I write about post-colonial issues and human rights issues that my own country won't address. And I've never lived in Algeria. I've only been with my family. And I, I do wish to be able to reconcile this two part of my identities. And we are millions of people in that case on both sides of the Mediterranean. But as you described, um, the discourses have become so extreme and anti-Islam in general. Some 
people were claiming for excuses or reparation. But in my case, I'm, I'm not even calling for that. I just want the, the people of color to be given the same respect, right not to be killed, especially by the police, especially by authorities and by the state as white people can have. That's Melissa Shamam, a journalist and lecturer at University of the West of England in Bristol. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. The elected sheriff of Pierce County is facing criminal charges. Today, Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson charged Sheriff Ed Troyer with false reporting and making a false statement to a civil servant. Those are misdemeanors. The charges come from an incident last January in which Troyer, who is white, had a confrontation with a black newspaper carrier in the middle of the night. KNKX South Sound reporter Kari Plog has been following the story and joins me from Tacoma to talk about it. Good afternoon, Kari. Hi there, Ed. Before we learn more about these charges, Kari, let's talk about what happened on the night of January 27th. Sure. So Cedric Alzheimer was delivering newspapers on his regular route in Troyer's Tacoma neighborhood around 2 a.m. Troyer followed him, thinking Alzheimer looked suspicious. There was an encounter. Troyer was off duty, but never identified himself as a law enforcement officer. Troyer called 911, claiming the man threatened to kill him. Mm. He later walked that back when talking about the incident with Tacoma police. Alzheimer, who is black, believes he was racially profiled and has filed a $5 million lawsuit. The incident also prompted federal civil rights complaints against Troyer even before these charges were filed by the attorney general today. Wow. All right. So let's talk about these charges. They are misdemeanors, uh, punishable, I believe, by up to 364 days in jail, a $5,000 fine. What does the attorney general's office say about this? So Troyer is charged with false reporting and making a false statement to a public servant. The probable cause statement released by the attorney general's office underscored Troyer's insistence to the 911 dispatcher that night that Alzheimer threatened him, even though, as I said before, he had recanted that to a Tacoma police officer, according to the incident report. The charging documents say that Troyer's call to 911 was just under five minutes long, but he said four times that someone had threatened to kill him. That prompted a massive police response for an emergency that wasn't actually happening. In total, 14 cops and sheriff's deputies out of those who were initially called arrived on the scene and immediately determined the call wasn't what it was reported. Yeah. What, what does Ed Troyer say about the charges today? So Troyer's response is long and it's wide ranging. Uh, in a statement, he called the charges a, quote, politically motivated anti-cop hit job. He claims the state's intervention has interfered with his right to a fair investigation. And he says that he trusts a Pierce County jury will not allow Attorney General Bob Ferguson to, quote, de-elect the sheriff. Yeah. So obviously there are you know legal consequences depending on how the case plays out. What could happen to Sheriff Troyer, though? There's so many other you know political implications here in light of these charges. Absolutely. Yeah. So Troyer is in his first term. He could serve up to three four year terms if he continues winning reelection over that time. He won in November 2020 with nearly 64 percent of the vote, despite raising significantly less money than his challenger. Even though he's facing these calls to resign from the public, he's still a pretty popular figure countywide after being the face of the department for 20 years under his predecessor. If he's convicted, though, and voters want to hold him accountable, they could petition for a recall. But the bar for recalling someone is very high. 
The Pierce County prosecutor could also explore adding Troyer to the so-called Brady list. Mm. That's a list that's required by law for keeping track of officers with credibility issues. Um, I also heard today from a spokesperson for the Washington State Criminal Justice Training Commission, which certifies police officers. She told me that if Troyer's conduct was found to have violated state law, the commission could potentially end up reviewing whether to revoke his certification. Law enforcement officers are are rarely decertified in Washington state, but recent changes in state law have made that easier. So we'll just have to see what happens after this is prosecuted. Lots to keep track of. Kari Plogue, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. KNKX South Sound reporter Kari Plogue reporting on news today that Pierce County Sheriff Ed Troyer faces two misdemeanor charges filed by the state attorney general stemming from his confrontation last winter with a newspaper carrier in the middle of the night. Kari has much more on this story on our website, knkx.org. Org. Hear ye, hear ye, the court's in session, the court's in session now. Today the Supreme Court sided with police officers in two cases where they'd been accused of excessive force. The cases involve what's known as qualified immunity, and that's the legal principle that shields officers from civil lawsuits. It's Monday, so Jessica Levinson is here for her legal insight and analysis. She's a professor at Loyola Law School and a regular legal eagle here on Press Play. Hi. Hi. Okay, let's talk about the two cases. One involved a police officer in Union City, California. What happened? Yeah, so in this case, his girlfriend actually had called the police, said, I'm in another room with uh, my kids, and we're basically trapped here, and police, can you come? Because we think that he might hurt us. The police came out, and they... Uh, arrested him. And the way the arrest went down is where they have here the claim for excessive force. So there's the claim that um, they apparently had put basically pushed him to the ground, put him in a prone position and put a police officer put his knee on this man's back while he was being handcuffed. The Ninth Circuit said, no, you can go forward. You don't get to use qualified immunity because, in fact, the man was not resisting arrest. The Supreme Court here said, no, the police officer gets qualified immunity. Hmm. Is it basically because of the manner in which the man was subdued? The, the court didn't think that it was a, the use of excessive force? So... Yes and no. Qualified immunity is this protection where it says to mainly police officers, but also government officials, you get to use this defense in typically claims of excessive force. And what's a claim of excessive force based on? Usually the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, which protects us against unreasonable searches and seizures and arrest or being detained can be an unreasonable search or seizure. But the reason that qualified immunity is so difficult for people who are suing police officers and or so protective of police officers is that the Supreme Court has said, basically, you only lose it if you can point to a statutory right or a constitutional right plaintiff that was clearly violated. And so in plain English, that means if there isn't a statute on point or if there hasn't been a case on point that clearly says this is a constitutional violation, then it's very hard for plaintiffs to sue and be able to point to that constitutional violation. It's one of these kind of horribly circular things where you can't establish it, you can't go forward, 
unless there's an established case. And so it's really a high threshold for people suing police officers. Again, these are civil cases. These are not criminal cases. Mm -hmm. But that's in part why I think there were so many calls to reform, because there's not that clearly established right until somebody clearly establishes the right. Hmm. Well, what about in a more extreme case? In this other case, a man was actually killed by two police officers in Oklahoma. The court also said that the officer sided with the officers in that case. Can you briefly tell us about that case? Yeah. So another case kind of stemming out of a domestic relationship. Here we have a man's ex-wife. He called the police. She called the police, excuse me, and said he's drunk in the garage. The police arrive and apparently say to him, we're not here to arrest you. We just want to remove you. He says, I don't want to go anywhere. They then apparently move forward. He backs up there again. They're in a garage. He grabs a hammer and then won't put it down and apparently then kind of holds it over his head. Two of the three police officers fatally shoot him. One of the police officers uses non-lethal force and basically says, I don't think we needed to use fatal force here. So the man's estate sues for use of excessive force based on what we just talked about. You violated the Fourth Amendment. This was an unreasonable search or seizure. And in this case, the Tenth Amendment, excuse me, the Tenth Circuit said these police officers don't get to use qualified immunity. So we have really a parallel to what happened in the California case where the Ninth Circuit said no qualified immunity. Um, In this case, the Tenth Circuit said, look, these police officers might have unjustifiably escalated the situation. The Supreme Court again says no for the same reason. You didn't point to a prior case that clearly established the police officers' actions were illegal. Again, name of the game for plaintiffs, find that case that's basically on all fours. You've clearly established, you've clearly shown that there's a violation of a right here. Hmm. Well, as you say, it seems very circular. So zooming out and looking at the big picture, what do these two rulings mean when we have this context now? Uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, you know, this, this, call to end qualified immunity. I mean, we did see it fail on Capitol Hill recently, but what does this mean? Uh, It means Congress is going to have to do something, and we saw what just happened, right? I mean, police reform failed in Congress, but this is not a Supreme Court that is signaling that they want to either try on its own to reform this doctrine or to push Congress. This isn't a Supreme Court where, you know, in this unsigned order, with no noted public dissents, where they overturn two circuit court rulings that is indicating that they want to reform this particular doctrine. What does that mean? It means that the ball really is in the court of Congress to say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to clearly establish, you know, that this is a violation, for instance, um, which I hate to say it, but if you can't look at the judicial branch for help, of somebody who might want to sue a police officer in an excessive force case, if you can't look to the legislative branch, uh, you're really out of luck because governors can't do this by executive order. Shut up! 50 years ago, you had your own tied down with a fucking fork up your ass! You can talk, you can talk, you can talk your brain now, motherfucker! Roll his ass out, he's a nigger! He's a nigger! 
Our next guest, Russ Wilburn, is the first African-American chair of the Iowa Democratic Party, and he has received multiple racist threats, including a lynching threat for an opinion piece he wrote in an Iowa newspaper entitled, Iowa Republicans Put Loyalty to Trump Over Helping Iowans. Here's how Russ Wilburn describes the threats. The voicemails include very explicit language. Every other word was the N-word. What stood out this time was the language that was used, specifically the very direct statement about lynching. And I get angry about that, that people feel that they can come in and make you feel less than human, subhuman, with that type of reference to lynching. Joining us now is State Representative Ross Wilburn. He is the chair of the Iowa Democratic Party. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. This was a a horrifying story to read about. Uh, You wrote an op-ed piece, a a fairly short op-ed piece in an Iowa newspaper before Donald Trump's visit to Iowa, pointing out uh, what Donald Trump uh, has done in terms of lying about the election and Chuck Grassley's participation in that rally and other Iowa Republicans' participation in the rally. I, I mean, a pretty standard piece in, in, uh, in 2021. And you're suddenly getting lynching threats from that. Yeah, you know, I, I do get angry about it, Lawrence. And, uh, and thanks for having me on the show. I wish it were for different circumstances, but... Uh, you know, it, it's not uncommon for uh, public servants and it's not uncommon for people of color serving a public role to receive racist emails or phone calls. But uh, the reference to to the act of lynching, that's what really made me angry. I mean, there's a, there's a history, as you know, of uh, in our country of people trying to intimidate uh, black people, black families with threats of lynching. I, I get the passion and anger that can happen sometimes in politics. Uh, it is, you know, they try and uh, push you down to help themselves feel better. Uh, that you're, you're, you know, you're not human, you're some type of animal or something. Uh, but it, uh, you know, it, it's just got, it's just got to stop. And I, I felt it was important to, uh, to file a, a complaint with, uh, with law enforcement, with Ames uh, Police Department. I'm grateful that they, they, uh, uh, you know, are taking this seriously and doing an investigation, but uh, it's, it's, it really has to stop. It, it's it's part of a national uh, surge in threats against public officials. Uh, the threats against members of Congress have skyrocketed this year. And there seems to be uh, an empowerment to these threats that Donald Trump has inspired uh, people with. Uh, it, is it your I mean, you've you've been in, in the public world for a while. Is it your sense that something has changed uh, in that if someone, if you mention, if you, as you did, write something about Donald Trump, uh, that's what's going to provoke this? Absolutely. It's been present, uh, you know, in, in our, in our uh, country's history. Uh, I mean, I, I used to be a mayor. You mentioned uh, public service. And, and uh, I remember being a mayor uh, in a grocery store and, uh, you know, people saying, greeting me, you know, hello, Mr. Mayor, good to see you. Thanks for, you know, a variety of things. And uh, as I was leaving, uh, exiting, I was pushing my shopping cart and, you know, people kind of converge on a point. Uh, you know, someone, uh, you know, her cart almost bumped into mine and I stopped. And before I could say, you know, excuse me, uh, she just yelled out, screamed out, uh, you know, get out of my way and drop the N word. So, you know, I mean, people were, were shocked and, and I was shocked. But uh, uh, so it's been present. But I think. The intensity has increased. Uh, the boldness—I I, I shake my head at what's happening. A lot of the school board 
meetings. Uh, we've got uh, school board and city council elections coming up this fall. And so um, uh, the intensity as well as the, the threat of violence, especially after uh, Trump's, Trump's comments uh, um, around January 6th. It, it's, uh, it's really, it's, uh, saying it's getting out of hand is uh, an understatement, a vast understatement. Uh, do you wonder about how long you can stay in this occupation if this is part of it? One of the reasons I came forward, uh, this, is, this is bigger than me. Uh, as I said, you're, you're starting to see violent acts. I mean, my blood still started to boil uh, in January at, at the insurrection there. But uh, I felt it was important to come forward to speak out, uh, both making the police report. And I do intend to uh, press charges if they're able to find the uh, uh, individual or individuals that did this. But, um, you know, for people who want to run for office, for people who are in appointed office or working uh, as public officials or just uh, uh, people and especially people of color who are trying to be community leaders. Um, I need to come forward and, and say that this has happened so that we can get, uh, you know, the other folks in our communities who don't want to see this happening, who are unaware that it is, you know, has been happening. Uh, but to say that this has got to stop us, not right. This is not who we are as Americans and it's not who we are as Iowans. So uh, that's why I felt it was important to come forward to try and encourage others to come forward. And so that no one's a bystander. I think that's the, the critical piece uh, because, uh, you know, the, the folks that have, uh, you know, that are responding to uh, Trump's, you know, uh, encouragement of violence, um, we need everyone else to be speaking forward and to say enough is enough. This is not who we are. Uh, it, it's just got to stop. So it, it was one small step, I think, for me to come forward. And, and I've, I've heard lots of support from, uh, from many others uh, and thanking me for doing so. But uh, really, it's I mean, uh, I just take a day at a time. We've got to we've got to stop this. Ross Wilburn, thank you very much for joining us tonight. And I agree with you. I'm sorry that this is the subject that you're joining us on tonight. Uh, we would love to have you come back to discuss the important presidential campaign state of Iowa many times in the future. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, no, no, I was just going to say, I, I didn't know about, uh, did that happen in America? The, the, um, you spoke about uh, somebody coming out of a car and shooting someone X amount of times. Uh, 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 I never knew about that. So, sorry, I didn't know about that. New tonight, you might call him a walking miracle. 11 days after he was shot seven times and left for dead, Bobby Gale of Stockton has just been released from the hospital in what is now a hate crime investigation. ABC 10's Kurt Rivera has more. Emerging in a wheelchair from San Joaquin General Hospital in French Camp, 45-year-old Bobby Gale was all smiles, happy to be alive. Because I did thought I was going to die. I did. I thought it was going to be my last day until I started praying and then I got calm and peace. His life-changing ordeal happened nearly two weeks ago. Gale was finishing up a construction project on a Friday night at a restaurant in North Stockton. He was outside when a pickup drove by. And the guy sped fast like he's going to run me over. And I actually, I told him to slow down, and that was the wrong thing I could have said. And he just got right out the truck and started shooting me right away. I just threw my hands up to let him know, hey, I'm coming in peace. Like, I thought I could look in his eye um, to be like, hey, what are you doing? But I couldn't get that in him. It was like I seen Satan, and Satan was just coming towards me. Gail was rushed to the hospital with seven gunshot wounds, including two to his head. Days later, 
31-year-old letter carrier Michael Hayes was arrested and charged with attempted murder, assault with a firearm, and a hate crime. He just got off the truck and said, die, die, and just started shooting. So that's when I know that he was, there was no bargaining with him. Despite it all, Gail is able to walk unassisted. He'll continue his recovery under the watchful eye of his brother Marlon. He remains upbeat and positive with a message. To love people, and that's what cures everything, not to hate this person and that person. For now, the suspect Michael Hayes remains behind bars on no bail. He'll be back in court later this month. What's the big thing this year? Election. Colin Powell. He should run. He could win. <laughs> Colin could win. He should run. He can't win. Colin Powell can't win. Colin Powell got a better chance of winning the bronze in female gymnastics <laughs> than being the president of the United States. Get the fuck out. White people ain't voting for Colin Powell. Say they are. They are not. Okay? Just gonna soup his head up, make him run. He'll get killed trying to run. Shit, Colin Powell. White people say they're going to vote for him because it seemed like the right thing to say. It just seems like a cool thing to say. Yeah, I'm going to vote for him. <laughs> Colin Powell can't be president. Get that. You know, I can tell Colin Powell can't be president. Whenever Colin Powell on the news, white people always give him the same compliments. Always the same compliments. How do you feel about Colin Powell? He speaks so well. <laughs> He's so well-spoken. He speaks so well. I mean, he really speaks well. He speaks so well. Like, that's a compliment. Speak so well is not a compliment, okay? Speak so well some shit you say about retarded people that can talk. What do you mean he speaks well? What, do you have a stroke the other day? He's a fucking educated man. How the fuck you expect him to sound? You're a dirty motherfucker. What are you talking about? He speaks so well. President Biden ordered flags at the White House to be flown at half-staff in honor of General Colin Powell, who died Monday at the age of 84. Powell was the first black secretary of state, the first black and youngest chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the first black national security adviser. On Monday, tributes poured in from both Republican and Democratic leaders. President Biden called Powell a, quote, patriot of unmatched honor and dignity. But in other parts of the world, Powell is remembered very differently. In Iraq, the journalist Muntadar al-Zaidi, who famously threw a shoe at President George W. Bush, tweeted that he was sad Powell had died before being tried for his crimes in Iraq. While serving as Secretary of State under Bush, General Powell played a pivotal role in paving the way for the U.S. invasion. It was February 5, 2003, that Powell addressed the United Nations Security Council and made the case for a first strike on Iraq. Powell's message was clear. Iraq possessed extremely dangerous weapons of mass destruction, and Saddam Hussein was systematically trying to deceive U.N. inspectors by hiding the prohibited weapons. All of Colin Powell's main claims about weapons of mass destruction turned out to be false. He later described the speech as a blot on his record. But the 2003 speech was not the first time General Powell had falsely alleged Iraq had WMDs. 
1991, during the Persian Gulf War, the U.S. bombed Iraq's only baby formula factory. At the time, General Powell said, quote, it is not an infant formula factory. It was a biological weapons facility. Of that, we are sure, he said. Well, you and investigators later confirmed the bomb factory was, in fact, making baby formula. While many in Iraq consider Powell to be a war criminal, just like they consider George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, Powell has long been celebrated at home. Colin Powell was born in Harlem in 1937. His parents had both immigrated from Jamaica. He was educated in public schools, including City College of New York, before he joined the military through ROTC. He served two tours in Vietnam. He was later accused of helping to whitewash the My Lai massacre, when U.S. soldiers slaughtered up to 500 villagers, most of them women, children and the elderly. While investigating an account of the massacre filed by a soldier, Powell wrote, quote, in direct refutation of this portrayal is the fact that relations between American soldiers and the Vietnamese people are excellent, he said. Powell spent 35 years in the military, rising to chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In the 1980s, he helped shape U.S. military policy in Latin America, at a time when U.S.-backed forces killed hundreds of thousands of people in El Salvador, Nicaragua. Guatemala and other countries. Powell also helped oversee the U.S. invasion of Panama and the Persian Gulf War. From 2001 to 2005, he served as Secretary of State under George W. Bush. After working under three Republican presidents, General Powell made headlines in 2008 when he endorsed Barack Obama for president just two weeks before Election Day. Earlier this year, General Powell said he no longer considered himself a Republican following the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. General Colin Powell died on Monday. His family said he died from COVID-19 complications. He was struggling with both Parkinson's disease and multiple myeloma, which left him severely immunocompromised. To talk more about Powell's life and legacy, we're joined by two guests. Roberta Lovato is with us, award-winning journalist, author of Unforgetting, a memoir of family migration, gangs and revolution in the Americas. He's closely tracked General Powell's history in Latin America. We're also joined by Clarence Lussain, professor at Howard University. He's author of many books, including Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, Foreign Policy, Race and the New American Century. Professor Lussain, let's begin with you. If you can talk about the legacy of Colin Powell. So thank you, uh, Amy, and, and thank you, other guests. So Powell leaves a very—he was a complicated political figure who leaves a complicated legacy. Uh, as you outlined in your introduction, Powell has a rise from the bottom story that really captured the imagination of many people. He rose from uh, growing up in uh, poor areas, or at least low-income areas in New York, to become fourth in line to president when he became the secretary of state. In the early 1990s, he was uh, uh, championed by both Democrats and Republicans uh, and recruited uh, by both to run for president. Uh, he declined uh, in 1995, and when he declined, he announced that he was joining the Republican Party. Now, the Republican Party he joined in 1995 was the Republican Party of Newt Gingrich. 
and it did not seem to be a fit. Colin was pro-choice, pro-affirmative action, pro-immigration, uh, call for gun control, all of which the Republican Party under Newt Gingrich and going forward uh, have been against. Uh, as you point out, he joins the uh, George W. Bush administration, the very first choice, in fact, of uh, George W. Bush for his cabinet because Powell has the international gravitas and respect that nobody else in and around George W. Bush has. But he never really fit in. And in the first eight or nine months of the George W. Bush administration, Powell lost fight after fight after fight when Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld uh, and others who were what we've called the neoconservatives, the neocons, uh, were really running the uh, administration. And there was a pretty good bet that Powell was not going to last until the end of the year. But then September 11 happens. Powell, always the loyal soldier, decides to stay. Uh, but he's still very isolated. He says that they basically saw him as a milk carton. They put him in the refrigerator, and when they needed him, they would bring him off the shelf, and then they would put him back. They brought him off the shelf in 2003 to talk at the UN because there was no one else in the administration who could get the attention and at least some belated respect. And Colin Powell went and gave that talk, which was uh, from A to Z, uh, false. Uh, but he was the only one in the administration. And then, of course, a year and a half later, uh, he's gone. Uh, but he's complicated because, in many ways, he did not fit in uh, with the Republican Party, even though he did not leave until uh, early this year. Uh, but he increasingly, and anyone who was moderate, and particularly black moderates, uh, simply had no place in the Republican Party. And so he endorses Obama, he endorses uh, um, uh, uh, Biden, uh, he endorses uh, Hillary Clinton, or at least he votes for them. Uh, so he really w had moved and been moved out of the Republican Party uh, for many years. But he really wasn't a Democrat or seen as a progressive either, uh, again, because of a long history of aggression internationally, going all the way back to Reagan and the Contras and all of the uh, foreign policy controversies of the 1980s, uh, and then under the Bush administration, which not only included Iraq, but also included the Bush policies towards Cuba, towards Venezuela, uh, their policies around uh, Africa, uh, all of which uh, increasingly isolated Colin Powell uh, from the progressive communities. Well, Professor, I wanted to ask you, in terms of the uh, the the need for both the Democrats uh, and the Republicans to repeatedly lionize uh, and hold up uh, uh, General Powell, especially, but then a Secretary of State uh, Powell uh, as a uh, as a key and important American figure, given the fact that the U.S. military, of all the institutions in American society, none is more racially diverse, I, I, it seems to me, than the U.S. military, with about 40 percent or more than 40 percent of the troops uh, uh, as uh, people of color. So could you talk about the importance of Powell as a figure, given the, the, the demographics and the changes in the American military? 
Uh, thanks, Juan. So part of the capital that uh, Colin Powell builds is precisely because he rises up to the top of an institution, one of the few that had not seemed to be tainted by political uh, partisanship, and he rises up and becomes the head, becomes head of Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, and Powell's personality is not a belligerent one, uh, one that we have unfortunately come to see more and more uh, in military figures and political figures. And Powell's uh, activism relative to addressing issues of race. So when we think of the conservative uh, African-Americans who are in and around the Republican Party, the Clarence Thomases, the uh, Candace Owens, those types tend to come to mind. But there were African-American conservatives who took positions that were supportive of issues related to the black community and were active and supportive of civil rights. So Powell fits into that, and so that gave him some cachet. Uh, he spoke at my graduation uh, at Howard University in 1994 uh, uh, and talked about issues of racism, uh, issues of being socially engaged. You're not going to find that coming from virtually any of the people we think of as black Republicans these days. So that gave Colin Powell a different kind of uh, public-facing uh, image, uh, which was in conflict, again, with many of the policies uh, in the party that he supported and in the administration in which he was involved. I didn't argue with black people at no point. Why? Because I knew it wasn't going anywhere. They're not going to make no decisions, no way. The decision's going to be made by the white person, the person who is in charge. I've sat in meetings where the, the white people who were there saying, well, we're not in charge of anything. I mean, this, this black guy is. But I, in my own way, in the course of the meeting, I would bring out that I know that these black people are not in charge of anything. Is somebody in this room who is white who is in charge, or if not in this room, some white person who is somewhere else, who is not at the meeting, who should be here. That's that was my procedure, because I know that's the only procedure that counts. But they will make it look like some black person is in charge. They ain't in charge of nothing. Colin Powell sat there and read a script that was bogus. And I think it bothers him to this day. They got him to tell a bunch of lies that started that Iraq mess. It turned out to be lies. I'm not calling it lies. I mean, that's what everybody says it was. Weapons of mass destruction. There wasn't any. But they had Colin Powell read it. And I said that that's what they were doing at the time, what's, what I suspected that they were doing. I didn't have no way of proving it. I just know how the white supremacists operate. I said, they, you know, they could have read that themselves. They didn't need Colin Powell except they wanted to put a black face on it. Use the old Sonda Commando thing to make an analogy. So that's what that's about.
All this morning, we've been hearing voices on the death of Colin Powell. He was a path-breaking American, the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the first black secretary of state. He was also criticized for supporting the invasion of Iraq, one huge event in in a tremendous career, a long, long career. Powell's family announced that he died of complications from COVID-19, although he had been fully vaccinated. He was immunocompromised, it is said. Joining us now is veteran broadcast journalist Ted Koppel, who developed a special relationship with Powell and also covered him over the years. Ted, welcome back. Thank you, Steve. Uh, What was Colin Powell's place in Washington, speaking just as someone who covered the, the Washington D.C. the last several decades. Well, he, he was—I uh, would say his his preeminent place was as an advisor to presidents, uh, and he did that in all the different posts that you've just enumerated. Uh, he was—he was a wise counselor uh, whose own background was largely influenced by all the years that he spent in the military, and in particular the years that he spent in Vietnam. I am thinking of one piece of advice that he gave as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and we should explain for those who don't know, that doesn't mean he's in charge of the U.S. military exactly. It means that he is the president's chief military advisor. And in 1990, 1991, he told President George H.W. Bush that if you're going to go into Iraq, go in with overwhelming force. He also, uh, you know, gave the famous Pottery Barn warning. If you break it, you own it. Uh, and in a very succinct way, that was precisely what happened to us, not only in Iraq, but also in Afghanistan for all too many years. We went in, we broke it, we owned it. Well, there are two pieces of advice that were taken in different ways. The advice to go in with overwhelming force in 1991 was advice that seemed to be taken. The United States invaded uh, Kuwait and parts of Iraq with an army of something like half a million people. The other advice was about the other war, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Uh, And that was a prophetic warning that was not taken. And that first warning, of course, came also with with the decision that was the key decision to get out and get out quickly. And President Bush, of course, made the decision to get out uh, without capturing Saddam Hussein, without going all the way up to Baghdad. Uh, and that was really the genius of that particular invasion and advice that was not followed during the second invasion. Well, let's talk about his role uh, in that second far more controversial and far more difficult war for both the United States and for Iraq because it lasted so long. Colin Powell had his doubts as that bit of advice about Pottery Barn suggested, but did not resign, did not speak out against the policy, and in the end was the person who went to the United Nations to make the case for war, make the case that Iraq was a danger, that Iraq Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. He was a tremendously popular figure among people in both political parties, Ted, and I'd like to know if you think that his, his reputation was used, if he was used there. Well, of course it was. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, uh, I think he spent more than a weekend, he and a couple of his top aides, were out at CIA headquarters looking at all the intelligence uh, and sifting the wheat from the chaff and 
Ultimately, I just heard my old friend Richard Haas, who was a close aide uh, of uh, Powell's at the time, talking about having sifted out perhaps 98% of all the garbage that was in there. And they really believed they had done as good a job as they could. But the fact of the matter is, you're absolutely right, it was Powell's speech at the United Nations that was as influential as any in terms of getting us into that war. And I think he regretted that for the rest of his life. Do you think he'll be remembered mainly for that? Oh, I hope not. I can't imagine uh, that in a professional life that was marked by so many firsts, and you enumerated them at the beginning of this piece, Steve, uh, I can't imagine that that's the one thing he'll be remembered for, and if indeed it is, it would be a great injustice. Context of white supremacy. We know about some injustice. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, October 23rd, 2021. So I have been told uh, this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, questions, counter racist suggestions. The number to dial is 720716. Seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate a few things before we get to the folks who dialed in very lengthy week most of them have been listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive uh, you can hit my blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com paypal button is in the top right corner uh links are right beneath uh for paypal cash app and venmo uh the cash app address cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows but all the links are right there on the blog much obliged for all the folks who have invested, uh, kept us on the air for 12-plus years. Hopefully, we have provided constructive information on the system of racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works, what it means to be classified as white. Uh, in addition to the blog, you can also hit the wish list, Amazon.com. Uh, it is linked under Gus T. Renegade. Feel free to check it out, uh, the list. Unfortunately, now I have a phone on the list. Seems I lost my phone somehow today in the madness of a Seattle Saturday, um, 2021. Can't stop, won't stop. It's worth every day. Anywho, uh, but the wish list, Gus T. Renegade, feel free to check it out, nab any items 
uh, on the list, much of life because we have grabbed things for 12 years that we've been on the air. Let's see. A few things to items I'll get to and then share with listeners, get to some of the folks who called in. Let's see. First, uh, we started the segment that was talking about adoptions, specifically white people adopting non-white children, so-called Asian children. Uh, now, one, just last week, that's two weeks in a row, we've had segments where people were talking about parents not preparing them for racism, not talking to them about racism, although they were not talking about white people abducting non-white children. Incidentally, we've had a number of cows programs uh, where we have talked to non-white people, white people, we've had a white man who adopted a black child was right there when the child was born, white gay man at that. Uh, we've had uh, folks on from the adoption agency in Chicago, lots of different programs, black female adopted by white parents, lots of different examples of that uh, over the years in the cows archives. Anywho, uh, from that segment specifically, uh, they said, my, my race and having these non-white children who've been abducted by white parents saying, I didn't really know about my race. How do you talk to them about their race? Same type of thing where white people as a race doesn't get described. Again, there's only one race. I'm not a member of a race. Anyone who's classified as not white, you're not a member of a race either. Member of a race for what? When did you join? There is one race, and that is consistently the race that does not get described as having a race. The folks classified as white. Next, uh, the segment, uh, Benton Harbor, we talked about that last week. Uh, they emphasized a number of times in the report, wow, this sounds like Flint. This sounds like Flint. And even the mayor pushed back. And we've heard that a few times where folks have said this is not Flint. Flint, they switched the water system and switched it back. You have some similar elements, but this is not the same thing. This is bad pipes, at least what they say at this point. Uh, but some similarities, a whole lot of times, it wasn't, ooh, we got poison water here. Better tell folks immediately. Better tell the folks in this predominantly black area, or at least areas where you had sizable populations of black people, better go out and tell the colored folks, got bad water. Eh. We'll get around to it. We got pressing matters to attend to. We'll, we'll get to that later. How much later? Three years later. They said last week we might have lost a whole generation. I guess so. When you got to depend on individuals classified as white to give you constructive information, this would be another one that I would point out both ways. The white people, individuals classified as white, I suspect, who had the ability to hold, conceal this information for three years. And then when the reporter, he said, wow, it seems like some of the residents, they don't really understand the danger of the water. Even remember last week when they said, when they were messaging about the danger, they weren't saying, hey, water's poison, don't drink it. They were saying, be abundantly cautious. We even had Reverend Pinkney, uh, he was on last week, and he said, no, 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 don't say that. Don't drink the water. Don't brush your teeth with it. See, there's lots of ways that white people are 
directly contributing to see that the black people are at a disadvantage, as they say, not informed. When we ask that question about who is more informed about racism, white supremacy, this is a good example to be mindful of. Who has more information, really, about anything that's constructive, any area of people activity in a system of white supremacy? Who's going to have more information? And who's going to have access to that information the fastest at the time you need? Next. Even some of the metaphors there, they said, when asked, hey, why did this take three years to reveal? And he said, uh, the mayor who's a victim of racism, he said, well, sometimes the wheels of government can turn slow. What? And particularly, what? My child has been poisoned for three years? The wheels of government can turn slow. Next. Uh, let's see. Oh, my goodness, I forgot that. This should have been in workplace racism, but it just, I wrote it down in the middle of my notes here. Uh, they have all kinds of wacky contraptions. It is nearly 2022. They have, like, portable refrigerators and things. Like, not a cooler, like an actual refrigerator. Some that are really sleek and stylish. I was thinking about this, as I said, for workplace racism. Uh, anyone who you bring food into work and you have concerns about sharing refrigerator space uh, with your coworkers, understandably so, they have all kinds of refrigerators, like not the big, larger, like brown ones that I think they have in a lot of colleges. They have like sleek models that are about the size of a lunchbox, almost something that's like portable enough that you could bring it in and take it home every day. You could have it sitting on your desk and just take it with you, what have you, but they have all kinds of gadgets. Some of them don't have to be super expensive where if you need a refrigerator, whammo, or even some of the people who drive and such. I was thinking people who do longer driving, truckers and such, but if you're in your vehicle a lot, might be an option as well, especially if you don't want to be out. You could have your little portable refrigerator on the job. That way you can keep an eye on it. Don't have to worry about people stealing your food or whatever else. And then you just take it home so you don't have to worry about them stealing your refrigerator either. I wouldn't brag about that item if you have them in the workplace either. I would sneak it in and sneak it out daily, of course, of course, of course, you never leave it on the premises if you do use it. But just something to think about, maybe. Next, uh, the segment where they talked about both the dollar stores and their proliferation and measures to curb them because they don't have nutritious food, duh. Uh, and then the segment immediately following where it was, hey, let's prescribe healthy food nutritious food, not all that high fructose corn syrup, cheese, and sugar, and monosodium, glutamate, potato chips. We talked about that last week. How about prescribed healthy foods? I've heard that repeatedly. We're not going to stuff you full of 50,000 medications and all this other stuff. Put the soda down. Put the Cheetos and corn chips down. We're going to drink water. Exactly some of the things that they said, arugula, spinach, cilantro, mushrooms, squash, pumpkin, that's in season right now, sweet potatoes, that's in season right now, acorn squash, that's in season right now, that's what we're going to eat, some nuts, whole grains, and oh my goodness, all these improvements, 
Maybe I, I don't have to be on all this uh, medication for my diabetes. I've lost some weight. My stomach is smaller. My goodness. Eating better. And racist white supremacists, they are very aware of this. It is deliberate having the black people in areas where they say you have to go 20 miles to get to a grocery store. you got a Dollar General and a Waffle House or something to that effect. 20 miles to get to anything where you could get some fresh pitch. All by design. And even, I think some folks have said, like, man, all this time during the whole COVID-19 crisis, they've talked about vaccines and wag their finger and black people saying, you no count niggas and no service on you go out there and take your shot along in the pandemic, all that. Not once has it been, hey, they keep talking about this link between obesity COVID-19, why don't we work on getting our diet together? I mean, that might be a whole lot cheaper than having to get everybody on all these pills. They're talking about a COVID-19 pill now. We could just eat carrots. Wouldn't that be cheaper? Got to lose some weight. Anyway, we had an obesity problem even before corona. Wouldn't that be better? No. Right, I'm probably giving out uh, the COVID-19 vaccine in McDonald's in some places. I, I know they had it at the liquor store, so it wouldn't surprise me. Come get a free Big Mac with your shot. Let's see. Next. Uh, oh, I, I meant to add, so glad I took notes. I meant to add, now, here in Seattle, when they talked about ways to encourage people to eat better, get more fruits and vegetables, we can subsidize the program and all that good stuff. They subsidize a lot of really horrible food like dairy and sugar. Uh, anyway, here in Seattle, they have a program. It's called Fresh Bucks. Bucks is in the word, God, I believe. But Fresh Bucks. And I think you just sign up for it. I didn't enroll in this program. I found out about this uh, black mom that I know. And I think this, I don't think you had to be like on EBT or social services or anything. I think this is an, a program like literally to encourage people go to the food market, I mean the farmer's market, get, you know, fresh produce and all that. It may have been to try to incentive, uh, incentivize moms, I know she's a parent, so it might have been that sort of thing, but I don't even think you had to be a member. I think it was just something where they had an enrollment period and she enrolled. They would give you $40 worth of fresh bucks, right? They mail them to you. And you could just go to the farmer's market. And I think, like they were explaining, they even had a certain number of grocery stores as well. But I mean, hey, Seattle, they have farmer's markets all over the city. I said they have Seattle Public Library has about 20 branches. I think they probably have about 20 different locations dispersed throughout the city for farmer's markets. Just they're everywhere. You literally, I think you could probably, if you had enough time, you could go to a different farmer's market like every day and get organic, high-quality produce year-round. In some cases, some of them are, are seasonal, but I think the one Capitol Hill is open year-round. Obviously, the produce changes depending on the season or what have you, but I mean from like May to now, or organic strawberries, organic cherries, and all kinds of peppers. I was bragging to people that I was coming about. Uh, I did my uh, burritos, and I would like, well, not, it was probably too late, but in the summertime, they would have purple 
bell peppers, oh my gosh, talk about nutrients, all those antioxidants, they are amazing, but you get all that stuff right at the farmer's market, so you could go take your $40 of fresh stuff, and, you know, $40, you can do quite a bit, uh, you know, at the, and that would be all organic, local, fresh. You had so many folks who said they didn't even know how to cook vegetables before they started going to the farmer's market like that. I've heard that bunches of times. So even people who go to the farmer's market are like, man, I don't even know what to do with this. What do you do with zucchini? I don't even know what to do with this. What do you do with a uh, pepper, purple pepper? What do you do with this? Eggplant, what do you do with this? Let's see. The segment where they talked about uh, reparations. Incidentally, Gusty Renegade, that is right, like, on the top of list of my list of things that I would be super happy to never hear about again. Nurse Rivers, Tuskegee, syphilis, that's right, like, high up there for, like, the next 10 years to not hear about that. Reparations is always up there. In a system of racism, white supremacy, I have no idea how so-called reparations would solve the problem. I don't even know how it would mitigate it if the mistreatment is ongoing beyond the fact that I do not see white people doing this at all. If they were going to do that, they could just stop practicing racism, white supremacy. Even within the segment, they talked to William Sandy Darity, black male victim of white supremacy down there, Mr. Reed's neck of the woods, as they say, North Carolina. And he said, well, we need to get in officials, presumably white people, who would approve some sort of reparations package to reduce this racial disparity, wealth gap, as they call it. I have no idea which group of individuals classified as white they think exist on the planet now or anywhere in the known universe who would approve such a package. They were just grousing about the census numbers, unless I'm mistaken. I cannot imagine this being the time or 20 years from now or 50 years from now or 500 years from now, there being a substantial number of individuals classified as white. Like, oh, yeah, we have done the niggas wrong. Let's go ahead and do this reparations thing. If they did, it would be a whole lot of individuals. Remember Rachel Dozel? I can segue with a question. Let's see. And they can't even get the budget passed. You would tell me they talk about reparations. In fact, part of President Biden's failed budget was about infrastructure. We got all these no-count lead pipes that are poisoning all the niggas. Let's go ahead and change the pipe. And can't even get the budget passed. You telling me you're going to get Congress to come in and well, let's let's take care of the niggas. We'll call it a uh, Obama reparations or something. Put his name back in the first Negro president. Next, let's see, in Louisville, uh, they had the high school football game, Louisville uh, versus Alliance, and called niggers and all that. We've heard bunches and bunches of those type of reports uh, over the years, really dating back decades, uh, where this was happening way back in Jim Brown's uh, time. My view, along with the brain damage, there is no reason to have black children participate in this. Most of these children are not going to the NFL. They're not going to be challenged to take Lamar Jackson's job anytime soon. Most of these folks are probably not even going to go to a Division One, Division Two school. Most of them. This is probably going to be their big hurrah for football is playing at the high school league. 
to get brain damage and be called a Negro. I think we can do something better with our time and energy. If it's exercise, there are lots of better options than football where you will not get brain damage and probably won't have to be called a nigger either. Just saying. Attempted parents, that would be a big one. We do our 200 questions. Uh, do you want to have children? Yes? Oh, okay. Awesome. Me too. Breastfeed, vegan diet, all the rest of it. Oh, if we have a boy, you don't want them to play football, do you? The answer, they get a wrong answer on that one, like, ooh, got to wait on this one. What's going to be beneficial about our black child getting brain damage? That's the follow-up if they give you the wrong answer on that one. What's going to be beneficial about our child getting brain damage? Might not go any further on the list till we get all that resolved. Let's see. When they talked about the situation in France, uh, the conflict in Algiers from the 1960s, that was another one. We heard the exact same thing last week, and this is two weeks in a row where we had individuals who are not classified as black but are non-white saying, man, our parents did not talk to us about racism at all. Victim was asked, man, did they talk about Algiers, what was happening, and the fight against colonialism on the continent in the 1960s? No. She said, and I said, wow, I just hear that? I need to look at the transcript. She said they didn't talk about it. I've heard that a billion times. She said not only did they not talk about it, she said, I think there was a book hidden in the kitchen. A book hidden in the kitchen? Wow. That is so, so common. We even... We heard that repeatedly just in Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Sons. She said repeatedly when she went to interview black people, they said over and over, I had never spoken about these issues. I never talked about this. Things that happened where I was mistreated on the job or things that happened where I was mistreated this way or that way, experienced racism. I never even talked about these things much less share this information with my offspring. One of the things that I think we can make a lot of improvement on, speak honestly to your children about racism, white supremacy, and in fact, maybe you can be working on a library. Since they're not going to be playing tackle football, you could be working on a library so they'll have lots and lots of books to read about racism, white supremacy. Maybe that should be part of it. You don't do, you don't have uh, conceive a black child until you have X amount of books put together. So you have a library already rolling, age appropriate, right? So they have things that they can read at five, six, wherever they are in the continuum, all the way up, diet, school, all that stuff. No conception until all that has happened. Being serious about producing children in a system of white supremacy. Uh, let's see. Next. Oh, but in Algiers, so they didn't talk about racism. Consistent. Uh, I was reminded, I think it was Dr. Kamal Kamban said uh, the book Battle for the, excuse me, the film Battle for Algiers uh, is pretty interesting, uh, constructive, worthy of a viewing. Uh, it is not a documentary, but it is in black and white and it's subtitled. So that is definitely not one that you can be sleepy or not attentive to, uh, but it is constructive. I've seen it, but it's been a while, but it is constructive about this time period. 
Uh, and even the metaphor there, it was a black day in Paris. They couldn't say it was a white day since this was white supremacy racism, colonialism, they called it. Not a white day. This was a black day in Paris. Nigger Friday, Black Thursday, all of that. Got it. Uh, let's see. From the Seattle area, Tacoma is not Seattle, but I mean the airport is SeaTac, so it's basically the same thing. Uh, but the share, but I did, I did not do the Seattle because Pierce County is not where Seattle is. Seattle is in King County, Washington, named after Dr. Martin Luther King gag. Uh, but Pierce County is to the south. And I think they changed the names of all these counties at the same time, but that's Washington state his history. Sheriff Troyer, white man, we started off workplace racism talking about this not that long ago. Uh, the report about uh, Sheriff Troyer terrorizing this black male was on the front page of the Seattle Times. Uh, black male out delivering newspapers and he lies. Sheriff Troyer, what is this nigga doing? What is he doing? And then he calls it in. He's trying to kill me. And they send out like 14 police cars. They're going to go kill this black guy. And he's like, whoa, I'm delivering papers. What is going on here? We talked about this report. Incidentally, I remember one of the details. Uh, the victim, black male, he walked up to the vehicle where Sheriff Troyer, who was off duty at the time of all this, walked up to his vehicle to just inquire, like, why are you following me? Why are you harassing me? I'm just trying to do my job, delivering papers. What's going on? And I said then, I'll say again now, ooh, he could have been killed like a number of different ways. Sheriff Troyer could have pulled out his gun and then just, hey, nigga tried to kill me. I had self-defense. Maybe they find out he's lying. Maybe they don't. I do not recommend that at all. You should be thinking this person could be armed, much less, wow, this guy is a sheriff. Anywho, he's facing these two uh, misdemeanors for false reporting. I feel like this should be substantially more to waste all of that manpower, as they say, with the staff shortages that we've had. Uh, in the midst of all of this, to be lying and a lie of this magnitude where someone could have died. I feel like this should be more than a misdemeanor. Maybe I'm jaded because I feel like this is close enough to Gus T. This could have happened to me. I've been to Tacoma frequently. Uh, and then another tacky metaphor. So they say Sheriff Troyer. He reported, he told them originally in, in the statement that he said the 911 call was five minutes. He said four times, he's going to kill me. Nigga's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. Nigga's going to kill me. Like over and over and over, four times. He walks it back. Now that is a metaphor. Are we talking about moonwalking? What? Later they said, oh, he retracted. Lots of different ways that that can be said other than walked it back. And I mean, really what it sounds like is this person lied. Now, I know as a journalist, you're not supposed to call anybody a liar, but man, I would prefer something a bit more nuanced, detailed, professional, as opposed to walked it back. And I know that is a very in vogue metaphor, not when we're talking about what it sounds like. Someone flagrantly lied. He reneged. He changed his testimony. Anything other than walked it back. Next. Ross Wilburn. Uh, this is the black male in Iowa uh, who was threatened with a lynching for writing an op-ed piece uh, about former President Trump. 
uh, when I heard this report, I thought, man, PBS, they just did that segment like a couple months back. It was this summer. They were talking about how black female politicians have been under attack, which is true. But I said then, like, man, they couldn't have expanded this to just include black people, black politicians in general, because it's been quite a few of them. I said uh, Mayor, Lu- Mayor Lucas uh, in Kansas City, same thing. They threatened to lynch him. That was about masks. He put in a mask uh, mandate and went berserk about that. Even Representative Clyburn, when they had the January 6th insurrection, his office was attacked. And he said, man, what's going on here? Because I have a private office. My office isn't listed. Did someone so-called leak this information to target me specifically? There were a number of black males. I said, how did they get left out completely? Add this uh, to the list. Uh, Mr. Ross Wilburn, uh, where he's going to be threatened in the midst of all this. This would be another one where I would say white people are not ignorant about racism, white supremacy. Uh, It can't be all of a sudden a negress is something that we don't like. And the threat immediately becomes not just nigra. No one seems ignorant about that one, but also we're going to lynch him. Now, I hear all the time white people are ignorant. They don't read all this history and go back and, you know, read uh, at the hands of persons unknown and all this stuff. They are scholars on, you know, American racial history. They seem to understand the basics. I don't know if they got the cliff notes or not, but they never seem quite retarded about nigger, who the niggers are, what you do to a nigger. Got all of that. They don't even seem to do the lynching thing. That seems specifically reserved for black people that have got on my nerves. White people can do all the, they don't. You don't hear white people saying we're going to lynch Jeffrey Epstein. Raping children is a big deal, right? Allegedly, that's a big deal, right? That would be some. Hey, got away with this. We're going to lynch you. You're not even going to get a chance to die suspiciously in jail because we are going to lynch you. You don't hear that. It's just President Obama, uh, Mayor Lucas. Mr. Wilburn. Uh, let's see. Last, my quick commentary that I'll get on Colin Powell. All I can say is I didn't have like celebration. I, I was not someone who cheered Colin Powell. I don't have like a shrine to Mr. Powell set up uh, in my residence. I don't carry his picture around uh, in my wallet. He is a victim of white supremacy. I heard him called many things this week, everything except victim of white supremacy but i think we should read his autobiography uh because he talks a lot about racism and people would learn a lot of details i was so thankful that i was able to find that clip of mr fuller talking about colin powell and saying man he read that speech and everything victim of racism a lot of times racists they like racial showcasing let's put some black people out front yes get these things done and then it'll be a black person who gets blamed Yes. He'll have to be the one to sit up here and explain and all the rest of this, answer questions and be accused and all that. We'll get him up here to take some of the blame for all of this. Standard operating procedure. And this even happened this week. Once Colin Powell passed, there were Amy Goodman, my BFF, Amy Goodman. That was why I played that segment because I could have in pretty much every segment. It was dark stain tarnished legacy black spot on his record 
It was just on and on and on with those sort of metaphors with poor Colin Powell. And, oh, he lied to us. He went to the U.N. and he just lied. Bush's little lackey, he just went there and lied and lied and lied. Victim of white supremacy. People had the audacity to talk as though if Colin Powell hadn't read that speech, Iraq would have never happened the second time around. Are you serious? Are you telling me they needed a nigger? to come and talk anywhere in the known universe in order for them to go and drop bombs. I don't think so. That, in my view, that goes against the logic of white supremacy racism. They like the refinement. They like fooling people, of course. And as Mr. Fuller said, sometimes we just want to put a black face, put a black person, make it look like they are in charge. I said all the time when I mentioned Nurse Rivers, they have reports from like the 1950s and 40s where they were publishing scientific reports about the Tuskegee syphilis study and they put Nurse Rivers' name first. She's not even a doctor. How is her name first? Much less, this is 1950 Alabama, 1940 Alabama. How is her name first? They don't even allow doctors in Alabama at this time. Like she's in charge. That is a standard tactic. And it produces what you end up with this week. People, lots of victims. I had people on my Facebook page. My, Colin Powell, in many respects, is a war criminal. That's what you heard. My BFF, Amy Goodman, she brought victims of racism on her program news outlet. To Isn't Colin Powell a war criminal? He's thought of as a war criminal. What do you say? And she went to Clarence Lusain, who's been a guest on our program. We talked about uh, several of his books, actually. Very common behavior to have non-white people seem as though they have a little bit more authority than they do. And I would challenge people, look and find when white people die. Maybe some of us will be here when GW passes on, Bush, President Bush the second time around when he passes on. Now, when he passes, is it going to be? the black stain on his record of Katrina. Iraq contested it. Is that the way they're going to talk about him? Or is it going to be just, oh man, he died. So sad. Family. Colin Powell didn't get any of that. He got lots of criticism uh, and people name calling him uh, about Iraq. They went all the way back to Vietnam. Again, the masters of anti-Asian violence are white. And then they went to the COVID thing, like, oh, my gosh, he was vaccinated against uh, COVID-19. So now we got to talk and make sure that the uh, folks out there with all these conspiracy theories don't say that the vaccine killed him and all the rest of us. So they had to spend a whole lot of time talking about that and going into his medical background. Like, wow, no peace for Colin. It couldn't just be Colin Powell, former secretary of state, two tours in Vietnam, passed away this week at the age of 84, moving on to other <laughs> like that's all we had to do now. We got to talk about the black stain on his record. No count war criminal. And then pull out a whole lot of victims of racism to do so. I suspect we will read his autobiography. He wrote a lot, but he talks about that's the thing that galled me even more. They would talk about, let's say, Vietnam. He wrote about that extensively in his autobiography. They didn't even take a moment to read like a sentence, even if it's to refute it. Much less Iraq. I mean, it's lots of testimony of him on record talking about that. And, you know, anywho, the people most to blame continue to be classified as white. 
Colin Powell did at 84. Uh, the number to dial is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, observations, questions, that would be great. Just to make sure everyone has at least one chance to speak. Uh, if you know you're in a noisy environment, if you could get to maybe a quieter area, unmute, and then you can share your thoughts. Uh, that would be great, just so we don't have to compete with a lot of unnecessary background noise. Much obliged. Uh, if you could watch the metaphors uh, for this broadcast, we heard lots of them. Black mark, black stain. I think those are in the word guide, incidentally. Uh, you had one I forgot. They were talking in Benton Harbor. They said this has become a political a game of political chicken. I don't know what we're talking about with that either. And I'd say anytime we're talking about water has been poisoned, like we no metaphors. Let's be very explicit with what we're talking about. We need everybody to understand like exactly 100 percent what is going on. No failures one way that we can do that no metaphors that way everybody got it clear no opportunity for you to misinterpret something political chicken i thought we were talking about the water no metaphors race soldiers beautifully can invoke these metaphors uh to convey symbolism of white supremacy black day uh and to transmit a lot of confusion sometimes they'll take two concepts that are totally separate and they will insist that they are identical, equal, exact same thing. And frequently that is not the case at all. Uh, victims, myself included, sometimes we will take a metaphor analogy. We will substitute it for logic. Uh, many of us, we are still learning, so we don't have all the info that we need uh, when we're trying to articulate our thoughts. Uh, those analogies and metaphors, frequently, they just produce a lot more confusion. Uh, if we could work to be precise, specific with our words, that would be great. Uh, I will alert uh, about the metaphors. Thank you kindly. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have thoughts on any of the clips that we shared, passing of Colin Powell, what people said about Mr. Powell in your area, if that was something that came up amongst uh, victims that you are around, uh, line should be open. Feel free. Hello. Irie uh, in Louisiana. Yes, ma'am. Hotep, how is everyone doing? Hope you're well. Uh, thanks for the show, Gus. Um, a bit tired. Um, hmm. I wanted to ask a question after I speak on what I heard. Um, yeah, I remember um, when I was in the military, um, Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice. Uh, speaking about the weapons of mass destruction uh, or the fallacy, presenting it as fact. And even though I wasn't on code back then, I understood that they were being used. So I never personally got upset with them. Um, I did know some people, or at least I shouldn't say 
people, but one person that died as a result of the war in Iraq and um, some people that had gone over multiple times. And no, it, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't right. It wasn't just what they did, but still, even with those things happening, I never got upset with them directly because I, I knew it was, I, I focused on the president at the time and it being his, um, his cause. And um, I remember elders, um, when I would speak to them, non-white black saying that basically he, he started, well, he finished the war that his dad started. So I suppose the wisdom of those people helped me uh, understand without knowing the code. So may he rest in peace. Uh, he doesn't have to contend with white supremacy anymore, um, as far as I know. And that's a good thing. And one day, hopefully, it'll be a, a, a situation of reality on the planet and in the known universe. Um, as uh, Benton Harbor, um, I understand that as an attack, a biochemical, a biological attack, because um, Hotep and um, peace to uh, Glenn Ford of Black Agenda Radio, I've been listening to them for quite a while, uh, which, you know, led me to um, find out about the cows and Mr. Fuller. Uh, they would interview Reverend Pinkney often about how the Whirlpool Corporation wants Black residents out of Benton Harbor so they can utilize it as a golf course. So it makes sense that now there's a problem with the water um, because I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know, but it may cause some of the people who are residents to want to leave. Uh, especially if the problem is not corrected in time. And speaking of problems not being corrected, um, the fact that uh, white people are uh, talking about painting 1% of the planet white is very interesting because one, it's, instead of changing a bad habit or just not polluting and, and rummaging through the planet in the fashion that they have been causing chaos and uh, unbalance. The, the solution is paint the planet white, which has subconscious um, value. I don't know if that's a metaphor, but it, it, it suggests that white is the answer in my mind. Like, okay, let's just paint places white and that'll fix it. Okay, well, what places? And then what happens in the wintertime when you actually need heat? <laughs> like, it's stupid to me, it's funny to me, but it's also um, a manifestation of end-stage white supremacy. Rest in peace, Dr. Chris Weldon. But like she said, it's, it's just a product of that, end-stage white supremacy, which is capitalism. So it's another form of using capitalism as the answer to solve a problem that could be corrected, just like with the food. Let's just be in balance with nature, you know, let's eat right. Let's only use the resources around us for what they're supposed to be used for. But instead, they're going to find out where that element is they need, plunder that, 
and cause problems with the ecosystem and the people that are there and then sell a product to, you know, correct so-called global warming, which I no longer call it that, just call it, uh, you know, climate change or just global imbalance. Um, I've been away because I've been trying to help with an organization uh, that I thought was focused on um, helping Black people understand the system of racism and white supremacy and um, trying to create a balance with these people. But uh, I've been confronted with uh, the organizer basically wanting to take a very... um, academic approach to things, which I think is a little slow because the people around are um, in need of, they're in need of their problems being addressed now. And I don't know how inviting them to read a lot of books alone is going to do that. And also um, I have told the organizer that I believe he is practicing, um, practicing anti-blackness because he doesn't have any uh, foresight to have any programs that include young black men or old black men. And I told him about, you know, Miss Andrew and that I suspected his that and I asked him to do whatever he needs to do to learn about that because that's a form of anti-blackness to me and I don't, I'm not sure what to do. I do also believe the gentleman is sexually confused which is um, possibly causing him to go the route he's going to exclude black men. Maybe he wants to be a black woman himself. Um, I'm not sure, but I'm not, I, I could use some advice on it because I want to be constructive and help uh, because he has access to people and um, materials that I don't on my own. But at the same time, I do not want to aid in the bet uh, the system of racism and white supremacy by intellectualizing too much the problem that we have. I really want to address it with things that people can do right now to create balance for themselves as we go further into a very uncertain future. And I even thought about taking out an ad in a magazine uh, discussing uh, the compensatory code. Um, but I don't know if that will even work. Um, I don't know. It's just confusing and kind of disappointing because I feel like there was a little bit of a switching of purpose of what he told me at first, what he was trying to do. And now it just seems like, I don't want to use a metaphor, but it seems like there, it's a hustle. It's a new hustle now. And I'm not alone. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, Irie. Uh, that's grand. Appreciate the effort. That is not spectating, going out and trying to see if you can help be a part of some programs that are supposed to be offering constructive resources to black people, non-white people. And then even pointing out like, hey, I think there's some anti-blackness happening here. We are excluding uh, black people, black males specifically, uh, from services here. Um, that is pretty common. Uh, the anti-blackness in lots of different forms and blackness Android also very common um, hmm. and especially the details that you added on in terms of if there's some sexual confusion and 
you know, maybe he's dealing with this on a personal level as well. Um, that's also a very common system is, you know, impacts all of us. Um, I don't know if you are familiar, if you have access to, if there are any uh, people in your area who offer any type of services, uh, be it uh, grooming. I know we had a different cows listener um, across the land who was doing uh, grooming services, uh, just like basic uh, manicures. Uh, and she had, you know, a number of males who said, hey, you've neglected your nails. You know, let's let's sit down and, and get your nails uh, nice and, and shaped up. If you have, you know, a care mate or what have you, I'm sure she'll appreciate that. Even if you don't, maybe it'll help in, you know, securing one. Uh, but any sort of services, yoga, uh, nutrition, anything um, that would be even if, you know, someone just interested in uh, facilitating uh, a group where males can get together and, you know, talk about issues, nutrition, health, whatever, racism. Um, if you know any folks who do any um, activities of that nature or would be interested uh, in doing an activity of that nature, uh, if you could pitch him uh, some folks, because that's, you know, active, like we don't have to, you don't have to go around and beat the bushes or what have you. If he is dealing with some issues, if this is something that's just not where his focus, his energy is in terms of trying to do, provide constructive services for black males, bam, here's some right here. And then, you know, see if you can encourage other folks to think of some services. Uh, because if you all are serving other folks uh, in the area, you know, no one should be opposed to uh, some services being offered to black males in the area, too. Uh, older black males, especially seniors, I'm sure they would love that, where they could have some activities come in, fraternize for a little while, and maybe get some exercise or healthy food. That would be great for everybody. Um, so, yeah, if you know anyone, see if they would be down, and then you can suggest. I always think that's great when you can come with uh, answers, potentially to the problem that's being addressed that can be helpful. Uh, do we have any other folks with potential, I guess, thoughts, remedies, uh, this situation uh, for Irish? She's uh, in a program volunteering her time and energy and uh, noticing it seems like they might be leaving black males out. Uh, some ways uh, that you would try to address this. Uh, let's see, other folks who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Hello. Yes, ma'am, our caller in Georgia. Uh -huh. Hi, I hope everyone's having the best evening they can have. Um, they, I don't know, they always, I don't know, I, I really have grown, I don't think I didn't have any, but I've really grown to have more compassion for black men because it just seems like, I don't know, they're being, I don't know, left out. Now, again, I'm not a black man, so maybe your services and things being provided for them, but me not being a black man, you know, the closest black man to me is my father. He lives, you know, so much, a few hours away, and you know, he he knows how to look for resources. So he, you know, okay, and he's around a lot of black male members of his family, and they all talk and get along. So they work together for things. So I don't. It's it is sad, but I guess one on a positive note, I don't know. Um, it was I guess covered on the national news. Um, there were I guess a month ago there were some fights in a school in Louisiana that got pretty bad. I think some arrests. No, they were pretty bad, and these black male fathers decided enough was enough, so they go to the school now and kind of you know, go through the school, you better get to class, you know, kind of stuff like that. And it seems to be effective. 
um, I guess, you know, white people don't as effective as they put it on the news, the national news. So um, congratulations to them. I think that's a lot of black self-respect going in, not just your child, but agreeing to help with other people's children. You know, I think that's very positive. Um, and um, I, I agree with, like, the food deserts, but they're also, I think, I don't know to call it an activity desert or what. Um, I know recently, this person, my mom, she bought a tricycle, and we got some ones to kind of help us put it together, but there are some things, it was always so much they could do. So we took, we went to the bike shop, and there's only one bike shop here with um, a city of an area of at least 100,000 people. There's one bicycle shop. And, you know, they're backed up. You know, she's kind of distressed about that because she really wants to ride it. But um, I think something like that as well. You know, um, the food, of course, is definitely, I think, the most important. But, you know, having activities, knowing of activities that are available, thinking about activities as well. I know from time to time you're doing segments on hiking and things like that. But, um you know, I think that's also something we need to think about as well. And in addition to the food deserts, I know some people, not necessarily on this program, but, you know, they, they may need the EBT. And I remember I had, I used that for a while. And I believe it said you can buy seeds. And I don't think people promote that. That's definitely not promoted enough. And at the supermarket from time to time, especially in the spring and summer, they do sell seeds. So, and, you know, they're not really trained how to garden because in this area, you know, the, um, I guess the people that live in the housing, subsidized housing, I don't want to call it, you know, what other people call it, but the subsidized housing, you know, it's not like it was in New York, you know, it's kind of spread out. And I always think, why don't they have little trees outside their house or little bushes where they can have little fruits and stuff that would alleviate some of the food desert that I would see. Um, I guess that's me. And then again with Benton Harbor, I always, I think I said this before with Flint, um, check the universities. They always have biology and science departments. How would they, I know sometimes they do experiments, excuse me, with distilled water, but they still have to wash the tools and things like that. They tend to use regular water, and I would want to see how that the residue of that, because we can't assume everything is dried off perfectly, how that would affect experiments, and if they're on campus, or what kind of water is being um, used in the facilities, because that would be a clear difference giveaway, especially for the public universities in the area, that something is wrong if they're using different water. And I would definitely investigate that. Thank you. Hello? Yes, ma'am. Hello? I was fiddling with my oh. mute button. Much obliged. Uh, I think you did give that uh, excellent suggestion uh, with Flint, or one of the water situations to check the local university, see what type of water they're using because they, you know, have to do experiments and what have you and lab equipment and all the rest. And they would have great testing uh, kits and what have you uh, as well. That would be a great resource. So, yes, excellent uh, suggestion. Um, yeah, with the males, 
Yeah, I'm still trying to think on that myself. You talked about being your dad, I think, being the closest uh, black male to you, and he can get resources for himself. Right on. Uh, maybe all of us, we can work on building a little bit more compassion for black people, black males, black females, black children. Uh, that is something that the system of white supremacy is uh, diametrically opposed to. So that that is the whole point of anti-blackness. So we, we see these things happening, you know, eh. Nigra probably did something, deserved it or whatever. He should have been lynched, you know, that sort of thing, just to not have compassion for uh, other black people. Activity deserts. I had to write that one down. Activity deserts. That, like I said, now, Seattle, addition to all the libraries and um, farmers markets, they have a plethora of bike lanes, not just bike lanes, but like parks. I think I just posted uh was it Amazon? I think it may have been Amazon. It was either Amazon or one of the other uh, white-dominated uh, corporations uh, gifted the city of Seattle $8 million to complete construction on this, like, ridiculous uh, bike trail. Uh, it's supposed to be, like, three miles or something close to Lake Washington. Lake, I'm, like, right next to Lake Washington right now. Uh, but ju- this just happened literally like within the last two months or so. Uh, and it's not like Seattle had uh, a dearth of places to bike. They have parks galore. They have bike trails galore. Uh, you can go bike at you know any of the numerous lakes uh, throughout the city. They have lawn bikes, the ones that you can rent and what have you. So this is just a regular little biker's uh, paradise. Uh, biking go at the beach. Uh, where I broadcasted before it got all cold and everything. They had bikes you could go rent or bring your own and just ride up and down the beach. They have a whole little bike pathway there. So, I mean, absolutely. And that's same thing. That's not by accident. Uh, having areas, even for a long time, black people struggled to even get a playground. Much less, you know, some place to bike and or a place to go and get the bike repaired. Just if it's something small, you need a new tire or get some air in your tire or something like that. You got to go 20 miles. They have bike shops galore here, everywhere, even in the central uh, district where they used to warehouse the black people. They got bike shops there, too. In fact, they have little bike substations throughout the city. When I say substation, it'll be like sometimes it's really elaborate, like at minimum, it'll be uh, like an air pump. Uh, basic tools if you need to change your tire or adjust the seat or something like that, little, you know, wrenches for standard bikes and stuff. At some of these stops, it's way elaborate. Like, you could, you know, take the whole bike apart practically. Like, it's got all the stuff right there. It's got, like, the tools are uh, attached so you can't steal them. They're uh, kind of planted into the ground type of a thing. Uh, the same thing with all the, the air pump and all that other stuff. But they, they have all of this stuff throughout the city to encourage bikers, no activity deserts or food deserts in Seattle. Not by accident. Number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, other folks styled in with a retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to uh, everyone. Uh, speaking about uh, 
opportunities uh, for uh, exercise. Uh, the uh, the city of Miami Gardens uh, does a pretty good job. They with with parks. Uh, once it became a uh, city, uh, they uh, put uh, a lot of seems to put a lot of money into their parks. Uh, the only problem with the one that I attend to is uh, it has a nice trail. There's one that's on the inner part of the uh, of the uh, the facility. Uh, it's called the Betty Ferguson uh, Community Center. Uh, it's one on the inside, inner side of the gate, and it's one on the outside. And it is both both trails are paved by uh, uh, sidewalks, sidewalk-like uh, trails, a uh, little bit wider than your normal sidewalk uh, with the advent of multiple people running or walking in different directions, that sort of thing. Uh, probably about a mile uh, if, if you're counting a lap. It's probably about a mile and a half, something like that, uh, a piece. Uh, but the problem is, is some of the workers uh, don't have the gates unlocked. Some of the some of the passes are uh, they have gates that they have they lock, but they don't. <laughs> I'm having problems with them unlocking the gates during the opening hours, opening and clo- between the opening and closing hours. Uh, so you have access to the full trails uh, because I uh, walk or run every morning from Monday to Friday. And, uh, they, they, but I do have a, a, uh, a person at the uh, place that uh, is uh, very cordial uh, and, uh, and uh, she, uh, tells me that she'll get she get that done uh to keep those gates unlocked during all during the hours of the park being open this time uh last week i was in what i call indigenous territory what is now has been now known as the state of oklahoma uh, that's why i went to uh undergrad uh college langston university uh they call the they call the featured event homecoming <laughs> but uh whatever that means i'm not always sure uh uh but i wasn't just up there for a football game uh, uh i was there from uh wednesday of that week and came back safely uh Sunday, that following Sunday, uh, a person that I grew up with that also graduated with me. We've been knowing each other since he was in the fourth grade and I was in the third grade. Uh, uh, he was up there also, and he had this uh, project to whereas, from the standpoint of a student that may have to leave the campus because of a death in his or her family uh, that funds would be available 
for that young person to be able to leave the campus, go home to take care of whatever business business that needs to be done with something like that takes place in a person's family and to be able to get back on campus, to get back to what they, the important thing of uh, going to college for. Uh, and so I spent time driving, driving him around and also uh, introducing people to uh, this particular project, which was named after a uh, college football teammate of mine who uh, died of COVID-19, complications of COVID-19, about uh, about a half a year ago to a year ago. Uh, it'll be in his name, uh, out of Chicago, guy out of Chicago. Uh, also, uh, oh yeah, well, today, another session of DCS program. Uh, we finished watching the, uh, the movie that was done on the, on the true story of Brian Banks. Brian Banks was a uh, young black male uh, in California who was uh, uh, accused of rape uh, in, in, at his high school uh, by a uh, young lady who actually it was not, he did not rape anybody. Uh, basically, she accused him of it. And uh, in turn, uh, because he, of his poor, his poor uh, performance for, for his from his attorney, uh, he was actually convicted and did about six years in prison uh, for a crime that he did not commit. Uh, and we watched the ending of the full ending of the movie. I did half of it before I left to go to Oklahoma, uh, but uh, watched the remainder of it today. And then we just talked about it. And the primary thing, one of the main things we were talking about was making choices, making correct choices. Uh, I started with the little ones, the younger ones, uh, because it gave me gave me the uh, opportunity to talk about uh, being aware of the people who get paid to make a living teaching people uh, and the offense of some of these people putting their hands on a seven or eight or nine year old. Uh, and you, you speak to them in a way that they can understand. Uh, and they did understand what I was talking about, <laughs> uh, as far as, uh, do you allow anybody to put their hands on you? Uh, and if so, what do you do? And uh, they were pretty sharp on on the uh, question and answers as far as that concerned. With the older older guys, uh, my conversation with them was, "What do you go to school for? Do you go to school to make out, or do you go to school for some other reason?" 
other than making out and whatnot. It's a more important reason why you go to school. Uh, in other words, what I'm saying is he probably could avoid could have avoided uh, the brunt of whatever he was accused of if he made if he made a decision not to even get into the beginning stages of sexual uh, activity by going to this little spot that a lot of high schools have. Uh, I know because I used to work at a lot of them and there was some places where you where a, a young male, young female would go to in the, in the high school, uh, pre- preferably in their minds thinking it was some place of privacy. But it's hardly it's hardly ever that way. Almost everybody else knows where this place is at. Uh, but if he would have made a decision not to do that then he probably wouldn't have had the problems that he did have in the first place. But nevertheless, uh, it still was incorrect that he uh, was accused of something that he did not do, and he actually spent, like I said, six years in prison for it. Uh, but, uh, you know, things went up, went well, and, and the guys learned a lot, you know, uh, from uh, what we were talking about. And... Uh, hmm. That's all I can think about. Thanks a lot for listening. Much obliged. Retired firefighter in Florida. Glad you made it back safe from Oklahoma. Homecoming, as they say. Uh, And again, kudos for uh, investing the time and energy uh, with the young folks down there in South Florida and the uh, Brian banks film that's a great way to think about it in terms of why you you know going to school like what are we here for we here for you know running around chasing females or vice versa whichever way uh or or is there a greater purpose for investing our time and that's a great lesson to share with young people because it seems like lots of folks struggle with that priority throughout their life not just when they're 16 but when they're 26 and 36 and 46 and 66 they still struggle with wait a minute are we here sexual activity or oh yes yes replace white yes that's what we repeatedly so yes to get that in at a young age like oh yeah like there are other things that we're supposed to be doing yes yep i, I know of several stories of several real life instances where brian banks happened right right uh in the situations where i was close to right down here in south florida something very similar happened very easy uh to end up in some sort of especially for young folks and especially if alcohol is involved like woo, that can uh woo, very bad combination especially for young people who are not known for their excellent decision making to begin with then add something where they're impaired and maybe don't remember things Oof, can be awful excellent recommendation to share with young folks maybe even to repeat a few times uh let's see other folks oh uh, yeah for sure uh other folks who dialed in uh with a hand up uh number again 720-716 7300, the code 564943 pound. 
press star six one if you would like to participate. Other folks who dialed in. Can I be heard? Uh, Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. Hi. Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, the story about the dollar stores uh, kind of reminded me of when we read uh, A Terrible Thing to Waste by Harriet Washington uh, right before the pandemic hit. Uh, and she talked about the the issues of uh, dollar stores in black communities, which is steadily increasing. Uh, and she talked about all of the, the bad food that is in dollar stores and how uh, they have little to no kind of organic or, you know, foods in dollar stores and, you know, how this is tied into the health uh, and the bad eating of, uh, of these, uh, of these neighborhoods where predominantly black people live in. So uh, just kind of took me back to uh, reading that uh, in the book club. Um, Colin Powell, um, I think uh, it was mentioned, you know, he's a, uh, he's an example of uh, racial showcasing uh, somebody who has uh, gotten, uh, who was allowed to become you know, a general in the army by white people. Uh, I didn't have any, you know, any high praises, but I didn't also condemn him for what he did because obviously, you know, he had to do what he had to do to keep his position. Um, and obviously, uh, just like uh, Neely Fuller said, uh, he was made by white people to read the statement about the weapons of mass destruction. So uh, just kind of, uh, you know, he died, rest in peace. That's it. Um, also to uh, last week, uh, uh, there was a famous Chicago historian that passed away, uh, Dr. Timuel Black. Uh, he's, uh, uh, he passed away, uh, I think, uh, on October 13th. And what's interesting is he wrote a book. Uh, he wrote a two volume book about the, um, uh, about the black migration uh, into Chicago from, uh, from, from down South. Uh, it's called bridges of memory. It's like a two volume set uh, that he wrote. And it was a series of interviews that he did with families, uh, uh, families who migrated from, uh, the southern part of the United States uh, to the Chicago uh, area. And one of the interviews he, he did, and he, and he has in his first volume book, is one of Ida Mae Cress, who I believe is the, is the mother of uh, Dr. Francis Cress Wilson. So he has that interview in, in, his, uh, in his first volume book. Uh, so, you know, I just wanted to... Uh, say that and uh you know rest in peace uh dr timuel black uh, he's also uh one who was uh who was instrumental in uh you know uh, calling up dr king uh, dr martin luther king to come to chicago uh in his 1966 uh, visit and also too with the water crisis 
uh, in Benton Harbor, the known water crisis in Benton Harbor and in Flint, Michigan. Uh, we have similar situation here in the Chicagoland area. Uh, just recently, the the town of Dixmore, which is a suburb of uh, of Chicago that is uh, located about 18 miles south of Chicago, is having an issue with water pressure. Basically, um, uh, the water is not running correctly in the town of Dixmore, and Dixmore is predominantly a black, uh, predominantly populated by black, uh, not white black people. Uh, but then there was also the water crisis that was in University Park, which is a little further south of uh, Dixmore, and uh, there has been uh, there has been traces of lead that has been in their water for for over a year now. So uh, these water crises here, uh, they they don't seem to garner the attention that. Uh, in Harbor and Flint does, but just want to let you guys know that it is happening here, and it is probably happening in a lot of uh, places where non-white black people live at uh, as well. So, uh, but that's all I have on my line. Much obliged, Henry, in Chicago. Uh, I'm certain that that's true, uh, that the lead uh, poisoned water issue uh, is nationwide. I'm sure there are many, many areas where they have a lot of black people, a lot of non-white people, period. Uh, and they have the exact same thing. Um, yeah, like I said, it's just the places that we happen to know about that have gotten a lot of attention, Benton Harbor and Newark, New Jersey and uh, the Flint, Michigan area, of course. Um, Dr. Temuel Black, I did see that last week. I had the audio segment for it. I played a little bit of it before we went live, um, but I did read about that uh, last week, even though I did not know that, wow, he's got an interview with Dr. Welsing's mother. Like, that's uh, that would be a reason to read. Like, wow, that and a great illustration. Like, man, wherever you happen to be at, do some studying and know your local history. Like, wow, right there. Uh, like, if you are a Chicago resident, I'm like, oh, yeah got to have all Dr. Timuel Black's material. And I talked about having a library for your children, like right there. We live in Chicago or the Illinois area. Bingo. Make sure you read this so you have a better understanding, appreciation of, you know, where we live on the plantation specifically and how we got to this point. Like, uh, that is amazing. Uh, I have to check, have to check that out. See if they have that. The University of Washington's library is open again. So I have to see, maybe they have a copy. I would love to go, uh, read that. Uh, if they do, maybe I can photocopy and share. Uh, incidentally, one book that I did read, uh, we read together, uh, as Henry in Chicago mentioned, uh, Harriet A. Washington, I guess my favorite author. I say that with a question mark because I didn't really consider that, but she has two books in my top 10. So, I mean, hey, the proof is in the reading. Uh, in the book that we read, A Terrible Thing to Waste, she did indeed mention dollar stores. What did she, well, she mentioned them repeatedly. I'm just picking one time close to a highlight. She said these, she was talking about ways to minimize lead poisons in your food, water, near your family, where it's going to impact brain health, overall health as well. Dollar store fair. Buying food in dollar stores is an easy way to save money unless your purchase is tainted by toxins, heavy metals, 
or other poisons that harm the brain. Be especially wary of imported candies and tinned meats. Lead and microbes can leach into them from their containers and these dangers won't be acknowledged. On the label, imported pottery too can have high levels of lead. Some purchasers might be better obtained, some purchases, excuse me, might be better obtained from discount outlets that carry U.S. regulated goods. Join with friends and neighbors to buy economically in bulk at big box stores instead where you are less likely to encounter unregulated foreign fare. A terrible thing to waste. This is just one time that she talks about dollar stores and none of them are, oh yes, outstanding. Go and support your local dollar store. No. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, comments here, they want to make sure they get in. Can I add something to that? Uh, Irie, I believe. Irie, yes, ma'am. Yeah, there was a report I read um, maybe a year ago, maybe maybe uh, two years ago, about children's products um, that had cadmium in them, uh, crayons, paint, toys with paint, certain paint on them. And, you know, unfortunately, I suspect that, again, you know, this is uh, an act of biological warfare because they know that they've structured the system to make make it where only non-white people in so-called urban areas will be able to only be able to buy stuff that they can afford from the dollar store. So, um, yeah, it should be avoided. I do go to like maybe a dollar store from time to time to get maybe like paper towel, you know, that I know hasn't had, that I know of reports of toxins and stuff at it. But um, I don't, I never buy glass from the dollar store or like aluminum foil or anything food related or toiletry and, and, and bath related because I suspect it's always going to be something not right in it, like lead, the cadmiums and, you know, high amounts of parabens and stuff. So please know that everybody don't buy toys <laughs> and don't buy paint and crayons for your kids school supplies from the dollar store, you might actually, even pencils, they used to call them lead pencils, they might actually be lead pencils, and it just hasn't come out yet. And I will certainly uh, ask the director of this program about the suggestions that were made, see if he's open to that. Uh, I'm hoping so, but yeah, it's going to take some work because he's very, very much not focused on black men at all just just black women and children but these people the children were made with by black men and women with the help of black men so I, I just don't see how it's logically sound to exclude them but i'll try it and i'll report back when i have a chance 
Much obliged, uh, Irene. Indeed, Dr. Welsing, she used to say, you cannot have uh, a passing score of black self-respect if you are a black person and you despise black males, then your self-respect score can be no higher than 50. Same way you despise black females, your self-respect score can be no higher than 50, which is an F. Uh, anybody? We missed commentary. They want to make sure they get in. Yeah, I'll be heard. Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, I just found out about the the white girl, the 15-year-old, that called in about the uh, bomb threats at Newberry High School. Um, no surprise, but it says that her uh, bond sentence it was set at one hundred thousand, and it went down to twenty thousand. Um, and they apparently showed her face and everything like that. So white supremacy, uh, I think, definitely is in effect there. And the segment about the uh, the adoption, I think, the Asian children i thought about when i think that was a white woman that was speaking and she said that uh you know once they get older they're going to start becoming more aware i think and she was she was trying to make it seem like well i don't know if i should uh wait until they mention something and you know with her being classified as a white person Definitely, you really should be bringing up the issue of race, but I could tell just in her speaking, she's already uncomfortable mentioning that because it's to her power, advantage, and benefit. Uh, and the segment about, I think that was the, the football game, I found that powerful that I believe it was a part of the report where I think they said some of the uh, the players or some of the uh, team supporters, families or something like that, the fans of the high school uh, were being warned that they were about to be called nigger or something like that or the N-word or however it was. Um, I just thought about, I don't know if those were white people warning them or black people that was very interesting to me i never i never heard that on any of those kind of reports um and i agree that they should stop playing just the game period like if if that's going to be the result uh in the segment i think that was the black male that was talking about the um one of the words I know he used was boldness um, coming from the, the January 6th terrorism. And I do think also that white, many white supremacist suspects are becoming more emboldened uh, after that recent Trump administration. 
because I'm I'm always seeing it where uh, my area is more of the don't tread on me type of flags, Confederate flags, things like that. And uh, that's pretty much all I have to share right now. And thanks for the program. I appreciate it. And everybody have a good one. Much obliged, caller in Florida. I believe that was said. Uh, I'm not sure. It sound, I'm not sure if it was the students or if these were white people, non-white people, coaches. But it did say that that they were warned before the game. Uh, Louisville and Alliance. Now you're going to be called a nigger. So don't even worry about it. Block it out. They do that all the time. That's what I mean. Like pause right there. We're in high school. Why should it just be a part of my expectation to be called a nigra to come out here and play this game? I already got to get brain damage. Like, for real, for real? You all go and play them every year, and yeah, they call us niggers every year. <laughs> Maybe that's part of the brain damage. <laughs> Why are we playing? Now, I, I totally agree. The black person that eventually said, hey, we should cancel this game. A thousand percent agree, but like... Let's let go of the football altogether. We've got enough brain damage. We've got. A, they just had that lawsuit this week. They come out with the cognitive norming and tell you that black people are dumb and stupid anyway, so we don't have to compensate you correctly. Say they're going to get rid of that now. Like, it's lots of reasons to let that go. But that is a new one. I mean, we should all have a code about being called a nigra. But I mean, wow, that is totally different. We're going out 2021 for any reason, for a school activity and you're going to be called a nigra. Go ahead and get, you know, prayed up or whatever you need to do. But it's going to happen. Happens every year. Again, that President Obama, we got his quote in there. But again, uh, and incidentally, now white people don't seem to have any trouble sharing information with their children about calling black people niggers and practicing racism. Like they don't need any remedial course, any assistance. They steal a child from China or South Korea or wherever it is. Oh, my gosh. What are we going to do? I don't know how to bring it up. Do I wait for them to bring it up? In fact, you could bring it up with, hey, this is what it was like when we started telling people that we were going to adopt a non-white child. In fact, if it was super easy, you can explain that, too, because the adoption process has been deliberately made easy for white people to steal non-white children. I'm paraphrasing, but Dorothy Roberts wrote that exactly in her book. She just said it more eloquently, but with force. But it's the same thing. The rules for adopting children have been made to make it easy, painless, for individuals classified as white to abduct non-white children. You can just explain that. How did you get here? There we go. Like keeping us at a disadvantage, as they say. Conceal lots of concealing information all throughout Benton Harbor. How did this lead get here? I don't know. It's been here for three years. I don't know. Ignorance, man. Ignorance. That is the most common one. Uh, we will be back uh, at minimum for Shaft uh, on Thursday. Check Black Talk Radio Network, uh, Facebook at all uh, for updates, trying to get 
the date uh, for Mr. Ron Black so we can discuss his grandmother, Henrietta Lacks, medical apartheid. Uh, Harriet A. Washington talked about that, too. She wanted to write a book about that, but white people would not allow her to do so. Hopefully we'll be able to speak to Mr. Lax soon. I'll post as soon as we have a date and time confirmed. Uh, much obliged to all the folks uh, who tuned in. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Guess we creeped into Sunday for some people. Uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Preserve your health as best you can. Stay out of that dollar store and the liquor store. Uh, let's see. If you're going to be going out and about, be alert. No telling. Uh, and we're coming up on Halloween, too. Like, man, be alert. Like, Halloween is going to be on a Sunday, so that might mean that they move the parties up or party up the whole week long. Like, ooh, this is like the granddaddy of tackiness metaphor. But like, wow, lots of intoxicated white people and foolishness for no reason. Like, be very alert. Uh, I'm near the university district. I probably have to avoid certain areas for this week because they act a fool, especially near the sororities and all the rest of it. I have seen all of that. Sometimes that devolves into terrorizing people and throwing beer cans and all the rest of it. So be very alert. The drunk driving. Be very alert. Uh, try to avoid having to be out too late. If you can, uh, they'll probably have sobriety checkpoints, I would suspect, uh, this coming weekend. So be mindful of that as well. Uh, if you're going to be driving, you are sober, you are buckled, and you are not on the cell phone. Hopefully I can get mine back, but losing hope. I uh, want to have all of your attention on the road and what's happening around you. All of that said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.